Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Vladimir Putin. It's a name we all know, and a name many fear right now. As the gas prices rise, as influencers and regular people alike post their opinions on social media, as you turn on the news and watch more violence happen every day, you probably wonder, why is Putin doing what he's currently doing in Ukraine? Maybe you go to the internet, do some research, and are quickly overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. One article links to another explaining the background of one event. Another article links to a past atrocity committed by Putin and his government. Yet another article links to what politicians or organizations have to say about it all. Easy to become frustrated or confused by the sheer volume of information available on the internet about all of this. Vladimir Putin is terrifying the world right now, but his terror is not new. He's been doing terrifying shit for decades. 2022 invasion of Ukraine, not the first time Russia has invaded land that's not theirs. Vladimir Putin has been synonymous with Russia since he first became president in 2000. When he made some of his first speeches on national television, he promised to protect freedoms and human rights. He promised to bring Russia out of an economic depression, promised to restore Russia back to greatness after the fall of the Soviet Union. And in his supporters' eyes, he has done all that. But the reality is that his actions have led to the bloodshed of thousands of innocent people, and he has failed miserably regarding many of his promises. In this episode, we'll discuss who is Vladimir Putin and how did he grow up to become the ruthless leader he is today. We'll cover some of the most important events in his past and current terms as president, some of the atrocities committed under his watch, the background of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and so much more in this beware of Russian troll farms and be scared of the man who oversees the terrifying propaganda machine that is modern Mother Russia edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and happy Mother's Day to all the birth moms, stepmoms, adoptive moms, uh, puppy moms, grandmas, doing mom duty, and other lovely ladies I'm forgetting. Uh, raising kids, seriously, probably the most important job in the world. 
uh, uh, appreciate you. Not that uh, only mothers raise kids, of course, but a lot of mothers raise kids, obviously, because they're, you know, because they're moms. Appreciate it. Uh, now step into the suck dungeon. Shut the door behind you. I don't want any Russian spies listening to the shit I'm talking about this week. Dan Cowan sucked nasty Bojangles therapy human. Shit talker Putin does not worry about. Thank Nimrod. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Stay calm Bojangles. And glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald, aka Triple M. Couple quick announcements and then we are off to Russia. Uh, thanks to uh, the meat sacks who showed up in Montana for making my stand-up show in Missoula a blast a few weekends back. Oh man, getting Kyler, my son, up on stage was such a cool moment. Uh, very special show at the Wilma, and I look forward to uh, you know doing another show down at the Wilma down the road. Uh, hoping I had fun at Good Nights this past weekend in Raleigh. I think it's the last weekend of the club at that location. It's been in for a while. Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, Springfield, Missouri, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Davenport, Iowa. A uh, big theater show there. Uh, on, on the show, I think the next show is Boys to Men, which makes me uh, really crack up. And and closing things out in Chicago at Talia Hall. Until September. Uh, go to dancummins.tv, please, for more dates. Uh, new merch hitting the Bad Magic store this week for all the mothers out there. A lovely mini, mini collection from Ed Kemper's Closet featuring a new uh, mother tee and beautiful pendant necklace with a picture of Kemper himself. The fucking co-ed killer piece of shit. Also have a pretty cool uh, future time sucker kids tee for your little ones. So you can head on over and check that out at Bad Magic. Bad, what? Bad Magic. Go see the Bad Magic, badmagicmerch.com. Uh, May donation, uh, gonna talk about that real quick and then we're into Russia. Uh, excited to announce this month's charity. Our good friend Joe DeMeo told my wife, Lindsay, queen of Bad Magic, about the Halo Dental Network. As soon as I read about uh, what they were doing, knew it was really special, uh, deserved our attention while the amounts donate, still TBD. As I record this in advance, do want to tell you uh, what Halo is about. Uh, Founded by Dr. Brady Smith, Halo Dental Network is a coalition of dental professionals who donate their services to the dental underserved. Uh, Services include dental implants, veneers, fillings, and crowns. And when I first looked at my notes and saw underserved, uh, I thought it was uh, undeserved. Now, that would just paint a very different kind of message. (laughs) Like, who who are the dental undeserved? Um, If you want to learn more, please visit halodentalnetwork.org H-A-L-O halodentalnetwork.org you can uh, donate you can also nominate someone you know who is in need of some dental work but can't afford it very important to feel uh, confident about your smile uh, now meet sacks let's get into a quick little summary of Putin before I set up today's episode structure jump into a timeline and all that jazz uh, I had to put a muzzle on Bojangles and sneak some sedatives into his treats so I could record today's suck without him uh, tearing apart the suck dungeon in, in a fit of rage Highly intelligent, award-winning British journalist Gideon Rockman recently called Putin the man who fooled the world. Rockman wrote in a 2002 article for The Guardian, even though Western intelligence services had warned for months that Russia was poised to attack, many experienced Putin watchers, both in Russia and the West, refused to believe it. After more than 20 years of his leadership, they felt they understood Putin. He was ruthless and violent, no doubt, but he was also believed to be rational calculating and committed to Russia's integration into the world economy. Few believed he was capable of such a reckless gamble. Looking back, however, it is clear that the outside world has consistently misread him. From the moment he took power, outsiders too often saw what they wanted and played down the darkest sides of Putinism. Putin, man. I've never understood uh, why this guy has been publicly admired, or you know, publicly admired uh, by certain politicians, you know, just around the world. 
You know, you dig into who he is uh, just a little bit. Blatantly obvious to anyone who cares to see the truth that he's a corrupt, ruthless dictator who despises the West. A man who despises true democracy in the United States uh, makes me really not trust anyone who admires him. Uh, one-time American political hero, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani seems to admire him. He said of the uh, 2014 Russian annexation annex, annexation of uh, Crimea, he makes a decision and he executes it quickly. That's what you call a leader. Uh, Nigel Farage, British broadcaster, former politician who was leader of the UK Independence Party, UKIP, from 2006, 2009, and 2010 to 2016, and leader of the Brexit Party, renamed the Reform Party, uh, Reform UK, in 2021, uh, once said that Putin was the world leader he most admired. Uh, The way he played the whole Syria thing, brilliant. Not that I approve of him politically. At least he gave a disclaimer there. Uh, President of the Philippines, Rodrigo uh, Duarte, said, my favorite hero is Putin. Uh, To those who admire Putin, he's viewed as a strong, determined man's man, a fighter who built up Russia from the ruins of the Soviet Union. In their eyes, he did it all through strength, savvy, and cunning. But what exactly has he built? Anything worth admiring? I don't think so. On December 31st, 1999, Putin gave his first televised speech as the leader of Russia. He promised to protect freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of the mass media, ownership rights, these fundamental elements of a civilized society. Holy shit. Uh, He has fallen a a little bit short of those hollow promises uh, that fucking Russian gangster never actually gave two fucks about. Uh, Weird that a longtime KGB man wouldn't end up being trustworthy. Freedom of speech? Oh, hard no. Putin has regularly jailed his detractors. Uh, Back in March, Putin uh, greatly restricted or shut down access to social media, you know, shut it down to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter in Russia, literally made it illegal for anyone to publish the truth about what Russia was really doing in Ukraine. Uh, Reporters, you know, uh, TV broadcasters have been jailed. Others have walked away from their jobs because they can't tell the truth on and on. Freedom of mass media is a fundamental element of a civilized society, as Putin pointed out. So I guess Russia uh, does not have a fucking civilized society uh, because that uh, freedom does not exist under Putin's authoritarian rule. Back on March 4th, Putin signed into law legislation that will punish journalists with prison time of up to 15 years for publishing news that contradicts official statements about Moscow's war in Ukraine. God, if if you're not doing anything wrong, why would you make that uh, make that a law? Uh, The legislation was passed by both chambers of uh, Putin's puppet Russian parliament, uh, you know, stocked with bought and paid for Putin loyalists, people who would not dare to defy the strong Russian man, Putin. When Putin first took office, his political team quickly uh, worked to portray him as a strong man. The media published images of Putin on horseback, practicing judo, arm wrestling, walking shirtless by a river in Siberia. (laughs) Gleb uh, Pavlovsky, member of his publicity team, said the goal was to give him the image of a Hollywood savior hero. Classic old school propaganda. Propaganda that comes across pretty fucking transparent and cheesy uh, over here in the West. Uh, It's weird. It's weird. Uh, The shirtless horseback photos, especially, uh, very laughable, very cringy. He doesn't look tough to me. He looks like a fucking dork, (laughs) like some middle-aged rich kid who talked his daddy into buying him a pony. Look, daddy, baby boy can ride horses now. Strong Russian baby boy, love his pony, daddy. Look at my big boy muscles, daddy, and my strong pony boy. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, Since Russians alive today have literally always been surrounded by massive corruption and propaganda, though, I imagine they're more easily manipulated overall than we are, at least for now. Maybe don't realize how fucking dumb these picks are or probably more likely uh, just afraid to publicly say how fucking dumb they look. So why would Russia want a strong man anyway? 
Because when he rose to power at the end of the 90s, Russia had been a fucking shit show for years. We talked about Russia's wild 90s a bit back in episode 192, the Alexander Solonik super killer suck. Uh, worth revisiting here. Boris Yeltsin took over as the new president of Russia after Mikhail Gorbachev uh, stepped down as the final leader of communist Soviet Union, and he'd lead Russia from 1991 to 1999. Yeltsin was given the nearly impossible task of quickly transitioning Russia from a communist nation under state control to a representative democracy, in theory, under private control. And he'd be heavily criticized for economic mismanagement, massive amounts of corruption uh, occurring under his watch, the, the rise of the Russian oligarchs, incredibly wealthy, crooked Russian uh, business leaders slash gangsters, in many cases, who ended up essentially ruling the nation. A lot of the criticism labeled at Yeltsin uh, is fair. He was corrupt as fuck, did a lot of dumb shit. In late 1992, Yeltsin launched a program of free vouchers as a way to give Russia's mass privatization a jumpstart. Under this program, every Russian citizen was given a voucher worth around 10,000 rubles to be used for the purchase of shares of select state enterprises. Sounds pretty nice uh, at first, right? Sounds pretty uh, equitable. But not really, since poverty was rampant. These vouchers quickly ended up in the hands of a select few wealthy investors, many of them from organized crime or KGB backgrounds or both, who bought these vouchers from people who needed cash, not vouchers, to put food in their bellies. These people weren't looking to do investing. They had basic bills to pay. These vouchers ended up being bought for pennies on the dollar by those who had the money to do so, and many who had money to do so had made their money through illegal government kickbacks, bribes, crime, etc., and they purchased former state assets in sectors like finance, industry, energy, telecommunications, and the media. Then in 1995, uh, Yeltsin doubled down on this strategy, offered more stock shares in some of Russia's most valuable state enterprises that still hadn't been privatized in exchange for more money needed to run the government. So the government sold more assets to raise operating capital. And people who had already made millions with those voucher purchases made more millions. Uh, the rich got richer. By mid-1996, very small group of businessmen, the oligarchs, had gobbled up the stock shares, and they controlled most of Russia. And that's how, by 2015, many years later, just 110 individuals would end up owning 35% of the wealth of all of Russia. It is the oligarchs, and it is the peasants. Russia has the most unequal wealth distribution of any nation on Earth. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, oh, Jesus Christ, Khodorkovsky, there we go, was one of these oligarchs. A man Putin will later imprison for standing up to him uh, ended up worth $15 billion, worth $15 billion thanks to the wild 90s. The 90s were fucking awesome for him and those like him. But most Russians really struggled. Between 1990 and 1994, the first years of the transition from communism to what was supposed to be a representative democracy, life expectancy for Russian men and women declined from 63.8 and 74.4 years to 57.7 and 71.2 years, respectively. While in the U.S., for comparison's sake, life expectancy increased for both men and women from 71.8 and 78.8 years to 72.4 and 79 years. More than 75% of the decline in life expectancy was due to increased mortality rates for ages 25 to 64. Overall, cardiovascular diseases, heart disease, and stroke, and injuries accounted for 65% of the decline in life expectancy. Right? Stress, too much drinking to alleviate stress, hard living, thanks to poverty, killing off Russians faster than it did when their life was a dismal communist hellscape. They're worried about money more than ever now. By 1994, the real incomes of the Russian population had been cut in half from where it was in the final days of communism. 32 million out of, out of 148 million Russians found themselves living below the poverty line. 
Their average income did not exceed uh, U.S. $40 per month. Holy shit. Uh, Russia, while labeled a second world country, has become uh, or had become, you know, what most people thought of as a third world country. Uh, did you know that originally first world countries, where these labels come from, uh, allies of the U.S. and NATO, second world countries, allies of the Soviet Union, uh, and this is all in the Cold War, third world countries, nations that didn't pick a side. Uh, the meaning has changed over time, but that's where it started. Uh, the economy and standard of living continued to decline throughout Russia for the rest of the decade. After the collapse of the USSR, Russia lost 23.8% of its national territory, 48.5% of its population, 41% of its gross domestic product, 39.4% of its industrial potential, it's huge, as well as 44.6% of its military capability due to so many formerly controlled Soviet territories becoming independent nations. And all of that combined with widespread corruption made Russia maybe not the best place to live. Uh, Russia's national identity was lost. Life sucked in many, if not most ways, uh, during communistic rule for most Russians, but at least it was a sense of being a member of one of the most powerful nations on earth. Right? Who doesn't like to feel connected to a winning team? Tribalism needs so strong in what seems to be the overwhelming majority of the members of our herd species, and we tend to want to be uh, a member of a strong herd, especially if you've been raised to think that that's a, a point of pride, right? Raised to think that for your entire life singing patriotic songs, saluting the flag since you were old enough to speak and stand. Many, if not nearly all Russians, thanks to a lifetime of propaganda, combined with, you know, a lot of actual real-world power, believed that Russia was the most powerful nation on earth. But now Russia felt weak. Felt like it was in free fall. The economy kept getting worse, military not as strong as it used to be, oligarch gangsters running the shit show, and Russia needed a hero. And Putin, all too happy to audition for that role and play the part. Putin promised to bring things back to how they were at the height of the Soviet's might, right? When Russia was powerful, but with new, modern, more Western freedoms. In a 2005 speech, Putin called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And statements like that, you know, made most of the West fucking nervous where Putin was concerned. And he's very much a Russian nationalist. And all the nations that split apart from Russia with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he still views today those nations belong to Russia. He would love nothing more than, than to return Russia to its former position of power. And from there, who knows? Thank God that hasn't happened. Putin has failed to achieve his vision, at least thus far. What he has done since his first election is taken steps to secure indefinite power and suppress freedom. He's also failed to really improve the economy for the average citizen since the wild 90s. 2015, according to Karen Dawisha, author of Putin's Kleptocracy, the median or midpoint amount of wealth for the average Russian citizen right at this time, 2015, $871. Half the population had less than $871 in assets, half had more. Less than India, where in 2015, it was over $1,000. So the average Russian, more impoverished than the average Indian, not that long ago, India nation, I think uh, much more well-known in most people's minds for widespread poverty. But Russia, more impoverished. We just don't hear about it as much thanks to powerful KGBS propaganda machines or the machine that Putin has built. And a kleptocracy, uh, by the way, a government composed of people who use their power to steal their country's resources. That is exactly the type of government Putin runs. Uh, I mentioned before that Putin is anti-West, anti-US. Back in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, Putin delivered a speech promising to fight back against a US-led world order. He accused the U.S. of uncontained hyperuse of force in international relations. Just like U.S. politicians have for sure used a Cold War fear of Russia to justify a lot of military and covert actions over the years, 
some very questionable. Russia has done the same with the U.S. Russia, particularly before China became so powerful, long been our boogeyman, a boogeyman who's actually pretty scary. And Putin has stoked fear of the West, making America a boogeyman for the Russian people as well. And we are scary to him and his fellow partners in crime. Uh, We should be much less scary to the average Russian citizen who is not an important politician or oligarch. Our system of government, far from perfect, but a hell of a lot better than Russia, just statistically. Our citizens fare a lot better in the States uh, than citizens do in Russia. The U.S. ranked number 16 in the 2022 World Happiness Report with a score of 6.97. Russia ranked 80th, wee bit behind, with a score of 5.459. Northern Europe took the eight spots, uh, top eight spots, excuse me. Nordic nations took five of those eight. Of course they did. Finland, number one, 7.821. Uh, those rankings based on data from Gallup World Poll surveys from 2019 to 2021, based on answers to the main life evaluation question asked in the poll. And the question is called the uh, Cantrell Ladder. It asks respondents to think of a ladder with the best possible life for them being a 10 and the worst possible life being a zero. They're asked to rate their own current lives on that zero to 10 scale. And how does the U.S. compare to Russia as far as freedom goes? Well, reporters without borders publishes a World Press Freedom Index country ranking, uh, ranking based on the degree of freedom available to journalists in 180 countries as determined by pooling the responses of experts to a questionnaire devised by RSF. Uh, questions are designed to measure, amongst other things, the degree to which opinions are presented are represented in the media, the degree to which the media are able to function independently of sources of political, governmental, business, and religious power and influence, and the quality of the infrastructure that supports the production of news and information. And in the most recent report, the U.S. ranking, not fucking great, actually. Uh, We're 44th. Pretty disappointing. Shows how polarized and sensationalized and full of shit much of our mainstream media has become. Uh, The Czech Republic, South Africa, Italy, South Korea, almost 40 other nations outrank us. Finland, number two. Norway, number one. Fucking Nordic countries. Killing it on all these tests every year. Uh, Russia, though, way shittier than us. 150th is their ranking. Not much better than Turkey. And Turkey is a nation ran by a gaggle of cunts. Uh, Erdogan and Putin can go fall in a fucking piss puddle in some seedy alley and die. Uh, Russia's shitty ranking handed out before recent censorship events. I'm guessing Russia now close to the bottom. Uh, Just how Putin wants it. Fucking Putin. Putin currently 69 years old. He seems healthy, so he might be in charge for a long time to come. Paul Bia, president of uh, Cameroon, he's 89. Who knows how long Putin could lead Russia? Who knows uh, what he has in store for the rest of the world? Putin's been in charge for over two decades already, and the longer he remains in power, the more totalitarian he becomes, the harder it's going to be to probably get rid of him. Since taking power, he strengthened his influence in the Middle East, strengthened his relations with China, shown a willingness to use force to accomplish his goals, and scariest to me, uh, he has built maybe the greatest propaganda machine that the world has ever seen. Before we dive into a big timeline today, Starting with Putin's early childhood, examining his life, actually starting before his early childhood, because we'll talk about his uh, parents, uh, and then going into what we know about his political career up until now, before covering both invasions of Ukraine and other conflicts and controversies over the past two decades. Let's first take a look at this big propaganda machine and how much havoc Russian disinformation specialists wreak on the web. This is the scariest part of Putin's legacy to me. Let's talk about Twitter bots and troll farms. Just before 11 a.m., Moscow Standard Time on March 1st, After a night of Russian missile strikes on Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities, a set of Russian-language Twitter accounts spread a lie on many uh, many accounts that Ukraine was uh, bullshitting regarding its 
reports of civilian casualties. Uh, one account created last year uh, at NE underscore NU underscore CHE shared a video of a man standing in front of a row of dark gray body bags that appeared to be filled with corpses. And then as he spoke to the camera, one of the encased bodies behind him lifted its arms to stop the top of the bag from blowing away. And that looks bad, right? Except this video was not taken from Ukraine. It was taken from an Austrian TV report about a climate change demonstration held in Vienna this past February. I've seen it. Uh, but uh, N. Nu Che claimed it was from March in Ukraine. They wrote, propaganda makes mistakes too. One of the corpses came back to life right as they were uh, counting the deaths of Ukraine civilians, the tweet said. Surprised they didn't add a cry laughing and shaking my head emojis. Eight minutes later, another account, Enot Kremle Bot, tweeted the same video. I'm screaming. One of the corpses, quote unquote, came back to life during a segment about civilian deaths in Ukraine. Information war is reaching a new level, they wrote. Two other accounts created last fall within a few days of uh, Enot Kremle Bot uh, soon shared the same video and accusations of fake civilian casualties. Ukrainian propaganda does not sleep, said one. These Twitter profiles, pure Russian propaganda organized by the Russian state, uh, of course, that Putin rules with an iron fist. They're part of a pro-Putin network, dozens of accounts spread across Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram whose behavior, content, and coordination, all consistent with the Russian troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, according to Darren Linville, a Clemson University professor who, along with another professor, Patrick Warren, has spent years studying IRA accounts. Based in St. Petersburg, the Internet Research Agency is a troll farm linked to a Russian oligarch strongly connected to Putin, believed by many to directly follow the orders of Putin. And it's believed to be just one of a vast cyber army of Russian troll farms populated by disinformation specialists. The agency has employed fake accounts registered on major social networking sites, discussion boards, online newspaper sites, video hosting services to promote the Kremlin's interest in domestic and foreign policy, including Ukraine and the Middle East, as well as attempting to influence the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election. More than a thousand employees reportedly worked in just one of the agencies, who knows how many buildings, in 2015. And then the information their agents share through fake accounts they created, shared, retweeted, liked, etc. by legions of bot accounts. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these accounts can get uh, the propaganda they disseminate to trend and reach and manipulate millions and millions of real people. Hard to get the exact details and numbers on all this since they're so fucking secretive. The IRA burst into the American consciousness after its paid trolls used thousands of English language accounts across social media platforms to influence American voters during the 2016 presidential election. IRA was then later at the center of a 2018 Department of Justice criminal indictment for its alleged effort to interfere with elections and political processes. Beginning in late February, the IRA's network of propaganda accounts shifted to focus almost exclusively on Ukraine, echoing similar narratives and content across accounts and platforms. A popular post by the account at QR underscore COD accused the Ukrainian military of using civilians as human shields. Uh, Russia actually did that, but whatever. Another post by uh, uh, at QR underscore COD portrayed Ukraine as provoking Russia at the behest of NATO masters. Both tweets received hundreds of likes. Retweets were posted on the same day uh, as the body bag video. At least two Twitter accounts in the network also shared fake fact-checking videos. I can't stress enough, says Clemson's IRA expert, Darren Linville, the importance of understanding the way that this is a tool for Putin to control narratives among his own people, a way for him to lie to his own people and control the conversation. I first talked about Russian online disinformation campaigns, largely being behind the Pizzagate conspiracy back in 2017, episode 64. That's also when I first mentioned the Internet Research Agency. 
Attorney Sean Edgett told Congress in 2018 that almost 40,000 bot accounts involved in the Pizzagate conspiracy had characteristics we uh, associate uh, with accounts you know, that start in Russia. And the misinformation problem has only intensified in recent years dramatically. According to internal company report, or you know, according to in God damn it. According to an internal company report, there we go, uh, conducted by Facebook, released by MIT Technology Review in 2021, Facebook's most popular pages for Christian and Black American content were being run by Eastern European troll farms in 2019. This is nuts. 19 of Facebook's top 20 pages, you know, most popular 20 pages with the most followers for American Christians were run by Eastern European troll farms. This is confirmed. The top 16, one through 16, most popular Christian Facebook pages, Be Happy, Enjoy Life, uh, Jesus is My Lord, Smile and Shine, Why Not Us, etc. All troll farms, all fake. Most, if not all, have been deleted by Facebook since. Guideposts out of the top 20, the only actual real account actually ran by Christians. How sad and nefarious. And then Russian troll farms uh, alone reach 140 million Americans a month on Facebook just before the 2020 election. Just on Facebook, who the fuck knows how many uh, of us were trolled on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, how much Reddit and 4chan and other social sites infested with fake Russian manipulative bullshit. That shit is really, really scary. And it reeks of Putin, has his fingerprints all over it. His job for years with the KGB, some version of monitoring information and controlling narratives. This is uh, important to understand in an episode about Putin. He is a fucking snake, a very clever snake uh, and a snake who hates the West. How much cultural discord has he sown right now or, you know, so far around the world? How many Americans have been tricked into thinking that Ukraine is infested with neo-Nazis? And he's a good guy. And I'm aware that Ukraine, you know, has some neo-Nazis. They're not perfect. But having some fringe neo-Nazi groups, uh, you know, in Ukraine and then somehow using that to turn all of Ukraine into a bad guy is like uh, blaming all of America for the uh, words and actions of, say, I don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Ah, she's such an embarrassment. Uh, Russia, uh, different though, right? Russia led by a fucking real life Bond villain. How much of the left versus right, Democrats versus Republicans culture war that has torn so many families and friends apart? How much of that has been fueled by Putin's Twitter bots and troll farms? I think way more than we know. I just think we're being played and he's fucking loving it. And if they can do that, then who else can do that? You know, going forward. It's interesting to, uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see if Elon Musk uh, can clean up Twitter now that he's bought it. We'll see how other social media sites uh, get better, hopefully. Fingers crossed at handling disinformation going forward. At least there are fact check links under most of the nonsense truther posts I see recently. Uh, Going into our timeline now, please understand that because Putin is such a habitual liar, such a master of deceit and manipulation, there will be a fair amount of allegedly and supposedly qualifiers. Putin experts are always certain that he's a snake, Right? When it comes to a lot of the evidence of his deceitful ways, it's just hard to say with 100% certainty that he did specifically this or specifically that. He's very, very good at what he does. If he was a serial killer we were covering, he'd probably be the most prolific one by far. Actually, if he was a serial killer, we wouldn't be uh, talking about him because he wouldn't have got caught. Actually, uh, he is a serial killer in a sense, uh, supposedly. Just, just one who allegedly orders illegal executions as opposed to carrying them out himself. Now, uh, I need to go uh, check on Bojangles, maybe give him some more sedatives while we transition into today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. 
Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, born on October 7th, 1952, in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, Russia. And we cannot go further without addressing his first name slash middle name combo. You fucking kidding me? He essentially has the same first and middle names. Uh, that's actually a Russian tradition. The middle name of a son is often the first name of the father with Ovich added to the end of it. And that sounds super fucking dumb when you give your son your first name, right? Uh, Ovich translates to son of. So Vladimir, son of Vladimir, Putin is this motherfucker's name. It'd only be better if his last name was also Vladimir. Vladimir, son of Vladimir, Vladimir. Uh, Putin's parents, Vladimir Spirodanovich, Putin, and Maria Ivan, Ivanova Shalomova. Uh, Vladimir and Maria, both born in 1911. They met in the tiny village of Pomonevo, about 30 miles southeast of Moscow, uh, married in 1928, just 17 years old. Pomonevo, less of a town, more of a road lined with a couple farms just outside of another little town. Uh, and that's today. That's what it is today. Back in 1928, I bet it was just a, a sad communist, just collective farming center shithole. Uh, the couple moved back to Leningrad, settled in the village of Petrovoyets, a suburb, basically, uh, of uh, St. Petersburg, where the campus of St. Petersburg State University is located. Uh, they lived uh, there with Maria's relatives in 1932. After Vladimir Sr. was conscripted to, the na- conscripted to the Navy, they had a boy named Oleg who died in infancy. They died of weakness. You're not destined to be strong Russian man. The tiny heart of capitalist dog. It is best for everyone if he toss in trash can. In uh, 1940, Maria gave birth to a second son named Victor. Maybe a little stronger. Vladimir S. served in the Soviet Army during World War II in the 86th Division, 330th Rifle Regiment. He was an uneducated laborer, one of four sons of Spiridon Putin, a chef, a good chef, once worked in the famous Astoria Hotel. Five-star hotel in St. Petersburg, opened in 1912. Countless celebrities, world leaders have stayed there. His father is said to have once cooked for Russia's mad monk, former suck subject, Grigory Rasputin. Never forget Boney M. Uh, Putin's grandfather was a supporter of the Bolsheviks and he fled the capital during the Civil War and uh, famine after the October 1917 revolution. Uh, he settled in Pomovino, that village east of Moscow that I don't know how to say and there's no pronunciation guide because no one fucking cares about this place and then moved to the big city. He cooked for Vladimir Lenin's widow at her official Soviet dacha or second slash vacation home in the Gorky district on the edge of Moscow. Possible that he cooked for Stalin when he visited as well. Lenin's widow died in 1939. Then Spiridon worked at a retreat for Moscow's Communist Party Committee. His son, Putin's father, O.G. Vladimir, served as a submariner in the 1930s. Settled down near Leningrad in what was uh, then the village of Petrovitz, uh, where in addition to college campus, Peter the Great built his palace on the Gulf of Finland. In 1941, when he was 30 during World War II, Vladimir rushed to volunteer to defend his nation, was assigned to a special demolitions detachment of the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, NKVD the secret police agency that would become the KGB. And OG Vlad was, according to legend, a Russian Rambo of sorts. Impossible to determine if the following account of him is fact or some Putin propaganda. So uh, maybe Putin has KGB in his blood. One of Vladimir's first World War II missions went horribly wrong, according to the lore. He and 27 other soldiers parachuted behind German forces in uh, Kingisip, a little town less than 90 miles from St. Petersburg, near the border of Estonia, occupied by Russia in 1940. Uh, OG Vlad and his unit blew up an arms depot, but then ran out of ammo and rations. Sounds like maybe they should have taken some of the uh, arms from the arms depot before blowing it up. Estonians bought them food, excuse me, brought them food, but also revealed their location to the Germans. 
Soon they were fleeing under Germans' fire. Uh, the Germans also sent dogs after him. OG Vladimir ended up hiding in a marsh, using a reed as a little breathing tube at one point, like he's fucking Chuck Norris, one of those missing in action movies, until the patrol moves on. Only he and three other soldiers survive. The, NKV, the NKVD interrogate him, but he's never accused of desertion or cowardice. Fuck no, he's not, because he's OG Vlad. And he returns to fight in the front lines. If he had been accused of desertion, he would have been executed. And his family would have also been arrested per Stalin's order number 270. Why did Stalin pass this order? Well, for one thing, he was an evil fuck. Uh, But also because desertion in the early days of Russia uh, fighting in World War II was a huge problem. Russian soldiers were putting on the uniforms uh, of the men that they had killed and bouncing. So many soldiers hated living in communist Russia. They hated it so much that just executing them if they got caught deserting was not enough of a deterrent. That's insane. Still worth it. I'd rather be dead than live in stolen shit hole. So go ahead and kill me if you catch me. I don't fucking care. Uh, to counteract that sentiment, Stalin made it clear he wouldn't just have you killed. He would have your family sent to the gulags. Commenting on order number 270, Stalin stated, there are no Soviet prisoners of war, only traitors. Dear God, that is how you know that your nation is not worth fighting for. That your empire should actually crumble. When your citizens hate living in it so much, execution, not enough of a punishment for them trying to escape. And Putin admires Stalin, by the way. So that's, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, in a 2017 interview with filmmaker Oliver Stone, Putin compared Stalin to uh, Oliver Cromwell and Napoleon Bonaparte, saying that Stalin was a product of his time, which, uh, you know, can be interpreted as uh, excusing his flaws. Uh, Putin, but his, his flaws, I think, overreached that argument. I, I, I hate present, presentism. And uh, trying to judge people by by modern standards, but Stalin, even by the standards of his own time, was a fucking monster. Uh, Putin complained that excessively demonizing Stalin is a means to attack Soviet Union and Russia. Though he did go on to say that does not mean that we should forget the horrors of Stalinism. But he also really goes out of his way to hide those horrors. Putin has done a lot to rewrite history in Russia around Stalin. His propaganda machine promotes Stalin victories, minimizes or completely ignores, in most cases, his atrocities. Uh, or justifies them as being historically necessary. A March 2019 poll found that Russian support for Stalin had spiked a lot in less than 20 years during Putin's rule. 70% saw his historical role as positive, only 19% negative, up from 53% versus 33% in 2001. Uh, also uh, more troublesome, 46% thought that the results thought the results of Stalin's rule justified the human cost up from 25% in 2008. And most troubling to me, a 2018 poll found that 47% of 18 to 24-year-old Russians had never heard of Stalin's acts of repression and just, you know, uh, war crimes, atrocities, et cetera. So that's that's super cool. Good job. Good job, Putin. Way to whitewash uh, the, the worst aspects of Russian history. Uh, September 4th, 1941, German shells land inside Leningrad. Russian soldiers, their morale is shit. Mostly weather, the harsh Russian winter is what saved Russia from the Nazis. If Russia's climate was more like San Diego and less like Santa's workshop, Putin might have grown up speaking German. Uh, The Russian government now reduces rations more than they already had. OG Vlad's wife, Maria, and their son, Victor, trapped in the city. At first, Maria refuses to leave Leningrad, but her brother forces her to evacuate. She and Victor move to a shelter outside the city where Maria's health declines from hunger and stress until one day she falls unconscious and doesn't wake up. She's so unconscious that someone tosses her body into a pile of corpses, uh, a pile that was to be uh, picked up for disposal collection. And then and then <laughs> when she is collected uh, at the morgue, she wakes up moaning in pain. Holy shit. 
Putin's mother is a fucking zombie. Maybe that's why he's so evil. He's half zombie. Uh, seriously, that's wild if that happened. I'm guessing that came up in conversation from time to time. Uh, November 17th, 1941, OG Vlad, injured by a German hand grenade, uh, lays beside the Neva River for hours before fellow soldiers find him, carry him back to a Russian field hospital where an old neighbor finds him dying, slings him over his shoulder, carries him across the river. He's taken to a proper military hospital, spend, spends months recovering. And he's lucky to have been wounded. Had he not been wounded, he would have died, along with everyone else in his entire unit in a later battle. Man, dude had to have had PTSD from all that. Everyone he fought with, all of them died. Can't imagine what that would do to you. And it's not like he would ever see a counselor or take medication for that or anything. You know, that would be a sign of weakness in Russia. Uh, Maria found her husband in the military hospital, and then they both survived months of starvation and a Nazi invasion. Both of them really went through some shit, World War II. How would that affect their parenting of Putin? Uh, April of 1942, OG Vlad, released from the hospital, sent to work at a weapons factory. Their young son, Victor, only around two years old, dies of diphtheria, June of 1942, and is buried uh, in an unmarked mass grave while the city is under Nazi siege. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin uh, would be the couple's third son, born over 10 years later when they were, uh, you know, just uh, fucking for fun, I guess. Uh, He grew up hearing stories of this war uh, and was born in a city still scarred by the siege. To quote him, still suffering from deprivation, still consumed by fear. Just before he was born, the city went through the Leningrad affair. The city's wartime elite arrested, jailed, exiled, or executed. This is so fucked up. This speaks to like how especially horrific Stalin was. The mayor and other local politicians and military personnel had displayed exemplary courage. They had kept the Nazis from taking Leningrad during the siege of Leningrad. Uh, The siege, one of the bloodiest sieges in the history of warfare, lasted over two years. The Russian death toll... The number varies from 600,000 to 2 million, mostly civilians. After the war, the Soviet government reports about 670,000 registered deaths from 1941 to 1944. uh, And those deaths came mainly from starvation, stress, and exposure. But the Nazis never took the city, thanks to brave local leadership. Leaders who became heroes to post-World War II Russia. Heroes who became so popular, Stalin felt threatened. So how did that fuckhead repay them for their bravery? Well, being a wise, strong leader. He has them arrested on trumped-up charges. That's, uh, man, the Russians, they love to arrest people on trumped-up charges. Uh, The mayor, five others, then executed for being enemies of the state. Over 200 others sent to gulags for 10 to 25 years. uh, Around 2,000 other people forced to leave the city, right? Just have to fucking go to remote locations and die in obscurity. Russia, what a country! Uh, After the Leningrad affair, residents live in fear of Stalin's retribution. Of course they do. Uh, Putin himself even said, few people whose lives intersected with Stalin's came through unscathed. My grandfather was one of them, though. My grandfather kept pretty quiet about his past life. My parents didn't talk much about the past either. People generally didn't back then. But he later admires, in some ways, this pile of shit. That's interesting. Uh, Putin would later describe his father as taciturn and severe. Most people who knew Vladimir S. apparently were afraid of him. Taciturn and severe. Sounds like a nice way of saying, uh, he did not talk much and he is fucking scary. He's quiet, uh, not afraid to smack you. He hated joy. He was strong Russian. Russian man to be admired. Uh, after the war, OG Vlad worked at a factory that built passenger carriages for railways and subways. He was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, of course he was. Uh, what other party would he uh, be a member of? Uh, he became the factory's party representative. He was a strident loyalist. And for his loyalty, he was provided a room. <laughs> this is so very communist Russia. He's right in a room, roughly 180 square feet. 
and this room was inside a small communal apartment on the fifth floor of an 1800s apartment building, you know, built in the 1800s near the city's Central Avenue. Uh, Vladimir and Maria moved there in 1944, uh, living in a private space smaller than most people's, uh, you know, uh, bedrooms today. The average American bedroom, 200 square feet. The bathroom and kitchen were shared with an elderly couple and a Jewish family. Fuck yeah. Oh, yay, communism. How cool to have so little. How great to never have privacy. Maybe I hate the concept of communism more than the average person just because uh, despite touring as a stand-up comic, very public job that requires a crowd of people gathered in the same space to work, I'm actually an introvert, right? I power up when I'm quiet and alone. Communal living, fuck that. That sounds so terrible to me. I honestly think I would just rather be dead than have to live in someplace like that uh, if there was no hope of getting out. Uh, Putin said that the older couple were like his grandparents. He called the woman a Baba, ya- Baba Anya. Their tiny shared apartment had no hot water, no bathtub. Windowless hallway was the kitchen, uh, which consisted of a single gas burner <laughs> for all three of these families and a sink. The toilet was in a fucking closet against the stairwell. Of course it was. That a wood burning stove for heat. Uh, the apartment had poor ventilation, poor lighting, and was infested with rats uh, to the point that uh, young Putin and his friends would chase the rats around with sticks for fun. <laughs> But Putin doesn't complain much about this childhood. Uh, it was normal for him because his friends and classmates had the same childhoods, right? It made them strong Russian men. You should wish to grow children in rat-infest house with closet toilet and build honor and character. Uh, after Putin was born in 1952, Putin's mother Maria treated her son like the miracle he seemed to be. Yeah, man, she lost her first two kids and uh, you know, going to take special care of this one. She worked out part-time cleaning buildings, delivering bread, uh, spent as much time as she could with her only child, Vladimir, son of Vladimir. Interestingly, well, while uh, Putin's father was a stern atheist, Putin's mom and the elderly couple that they uh, lived with in their fucking rat-infested shithole uh, were devout members of the Russian Orthodox Church, repressed by the Soviet regime. Uh, Stalin should have had them killed. There's no room for dissent in strong Russia. Uh, November 21st, 1952, when he was just seven weeks old, Baba Anya and Maria walked into a cathedral to secretly baptize him. Then Putin didn't get his baptismal cross till he was 40 years old. His mom asked him to bless the cross at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem when he visited Israel. Uh, Putin does consider himself Christian today, uh, a member in theory at least, uh, probably I would speculate for political optics, of the highly nationalistic Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, we don't know much about Putin's childhood. He's probably, in, uh, in reality, he's probably a fucking nerd who got beat up on the playground a lot, stuffed in trash cans, an unattractive and creepy dork girls hate it but that's not the story he tells he says uh he was like a, he was like a young james dean or something he was a, a young putin he, he had a rebellious spirit one day in the early 60s when he was around 10 he and his friends supposedly decided to take a train to an unknown part of the city just fuck around build a fire for warmth when they returned home og vlad beat his son's ass with a belt for sneaking out nice actually that beating probably would probably justified right putin's dad well aware if putin rebelled too hard he'd have to worry about a lot more than a belt Better a belt than a gulag or end up being, you know, uh, yet another Russian dead body casually just tossed into an unmarked grave. Putin spent a lot of time in the apartment's courtyard growing up. The courtyard attracted drunks and thugs, he said, smoking, drinking, uh, otherwise whiling away their lives. Putin said he had to become a fighter to defend himself. One day in the courtyard, he had to fight, he had to defend himself from a strange man, Russian school teacher. A uh, future serial killer, 16 years older than himself, who tried to wrestle him after watching from the shadows, possibly beating off underneath his sweatpants. What is big deal? So I wrestled a young, weak Putin. So I jerk a soft shamecock in the corner about the no one. 
his features so slight and delicate and feminine. I think he is a young girl. I do not know he future KGB despot stolen fanboy guy. Or, you know, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe a uh, former sex subject serial killer under Chikatilo never taught in St. Petersburg. But he would kill just outside that city in 1987. And he did go after teen boys sometimes. So, you know, you never know. You never know. Putin's parents actually are really protective of him. People uh, did die in Russia all the time. St. Petersburg uh, especially had a fair amount of crime. He was forbidden to leave the courtyard without permission. According to a biographer, he grew up in the overly protective, if not outwardly loving embrace of his parents, who had miraculously survived and would do everything to ensure their son did too. Backing up a bit, September 1st, 1960. Seven-year-old Vladimir Putin begins attending school number 193. School 193, fun, warm school name. How incredibly soulless and very Russian. Uh, He was supposed to show up with flowers for his teacher, but he brought his teacher, Vera Gurovich, a potted plant instead. Nice, more, more practical. Not hollow, wasteful, capitalist gift. Uh, Putin was described as indifferent, petulant, and impulsive when he was young in school. He liked to spin in circles in class because he was a little kid and little kids are weird. Uh, He was often disruptive, spent time with poorly behaved kids. He was once caught carrying a knife in school. The Neighborhood Communist Party Committee rebuked him for delinquency, threatened to send him to an orphanage. His bad behavior even prevented him from getting into the Pioneers, a.k.a. the Brainwashing Club, a.k.a. the Communist Party Youth Organization. Membership considered an important rite of passage. By the third grade, he was one of only 45 kids in the whole school who hadn't joined. What a weird thing to be pressured to join a political party when you're in like first, second grade. Let the brainwashing begin early. Uh, Putin later said that this was him rebelling against his dad in the system. I, w- I was a hooligan, not a pioneer, he said. Yeah, you're also a fucking third grader. How much of a hooligan were you? Uh, in the fourth grade, Putin's teacher complained to his parents that he was intelligent but unorganized and disinterested. His dad, OG Vlad, responded, well, what can I do? Kill him or what? <laughs> Hopefully he was joking about that. Hopefully that was like a serious thing. What, what do you want me to do? You want me to kill him or kill him? Uh, his father pressured his son to take up boxing, but Vladimir quit when he got punched in the nose. He began practicing martial arts instead, sambo, which makes judo and wrestling. Putin's parents did not approve. Strange they would not approve of, uh, or strange that they would approve of boxing, but not martial arts. Enough with little sissy throws, junior, little sissy kicks. Time for box. Real man, strong enough to punch teeth out, not have to uh, get on ground in dirty uh, clothes, dirty little sissy boots. Anatoly Rocklin uh, was Putin's judo coach. Putin joined him in the fifth grade for judo classes. Uh, judo taught Putin how to defend himself against larger boys. Putin said, it was sports that dragged me off the streets. To be honest, the courtyard wasn't a very good environment for a kid. <laughs> I like the... I like he has to uh, qualify that with, to be honest. <laughs> Listen, uh, running around with no parental supervision, uh, getting into fights and drugs and things, let me be honest. It's not a good environment for a kid. Oh, thank you for that fucking powerful insight into uh, how childhood works. Uh, Putin had to get good grades to keep taking judo, so he began applying himself to his studies and his performance improved. His teacher was so impressed that she appealed to get him into the pioneers. Within a few weeks, Putin became the leader of the school's pioneer branch. By the 8th grade, Putin was one of the first students chosen to join the Komsomol, uh, the Communist Party's youth organization. The very young rebel now becomes a still pretty young, strident communist. Took him a couple extra years to break his spirit and brainwash him, but they fucking got him. Strong Russia! Uh, 1968, a 15-year-old teenage Putin, fascinated by the film The Shield and the Sword. Actually, more of a series of films, a popular four-part Russian spy series about kicking some Nazi ass. Putin changed his childhood dream from sailor to spy. He later said, what amazed me most of all was how one man's efforts could achieve what whole armies could not. One spy could decide the fate of thousands of people. 
The release of the films uh, was part of the modernizing effects of KGB director Yuri Antropov, who took over in 1967. Movies part entertainment, part, you know, Russian propaganda. And the KGB, a.k.a. the Committee for State Security, was the Soviet Union's foreign intelligence and domestic security agency. Much more aggressive counterpart to the CIA. Yuri wanted to transform the agency's public image from hated secret police to defender of Russia. Shortly after deciding he wanted to be a spy, young Vladimir walked into the local KGB headquarters, volunteered. He had to try three times before he was able to get into the building. And he had to find someone willing to listen to him. Putin said he found an officer who stopped to listen, but told him they didn't accept volunteers. You know, basically, get out of here, kid. KGB took people from the army or the university. Putin asked him what he should study at the university to become a spy. And the officer told him, consider law school. Putin now announced that he wanted to go to law school, much to his parents' chagrin and disappointment. They wanted him to go to tech school. Putin didn't tell his parents or his coach why he wanted to study law so badly, his judo coach. Uh, by the late 1960s, Putin's family could afford a three-room dasha in Tosno, a village outside of Leningrad, about 30 miles now. His parents were rewarded for being loyal commies. The state found it in its uh, cold hearts to give them three shithole rooms to sometimes vacation and when not living in one shithole room. Uh, Putin attended secondary school at school number 281, a special scientific academy to prepare students for university. Putin was studious, uh, studious, still enjoyed sports. Uh, Instead of focusing on science, he studied humanities, literature, and history. Also continued his lessons in German, which he'd been studying since the fourth grade. Uh, The school was unique in the Soviet Union in that it encouraged intellectual debate among students, which was good for his developing mind. Not that he's done a lot of great things with that developing mind. Uh, As a teen, Vladimir liked to listen to the Beatles with his friends. Uh, He called music a window to the outside world. He played the accordion, the guitar, and used his apartment telephone to call friends. He's a normal Russian teen boy. 1969, 16-year-old Putin dates a girl named Vera Brileva. They met at the uh, family Dasha in Tosno. And they kissed during a game of spin the bottle. Fuck yeah, bro. But their sweet kiss did not turn into a passionate love affair. Vera soon realized that Vladimir didn't have time for girls. During Putin's last year of school, he crammed for the entrance exams at the prestigious Leningrad State University. Only one in 40 applicants were accepted, and he would be that one in 40. There was some speculation that Putin got in because he was working class and the school wanted to diversify their student population. Or maybe the KGB was guiding him without his knowledge or maybe with his knowledge. Who the fuck knows this guy? Maybe he was never born. He was created in some KGB lab and has no real parents. In the fall of 1970, Putin began studying law at Leningrad State University. He studied hard, spent time in his uh, judo competitions when he wasn't studying, going to school, uh, but did refuse to join the school's judo team because he wanted to remain loyal to the judo club back home. 1973, 20-year-old Putin competes in city and regional judo championships, uh, travels inside the Soviet Union for competitions. Uh, we don't have a lot of information about how he placed, so I'm guessing he didn't dominate. I'm surprised he didn't make a bunch of shit about that. Uh, spent a summer cutting timber up north, spent two weeks in a student construction camp at the eastern edge of the Black Sea, what is now the Republic of Ab- Abkai- Abkai- Abkhazia. Abkhazia, or Georgia, or kind of Russia. A little confusing. The uh, Crimean Peninsula, far from the, uh, actually, I think it's uh, Crimean Peninsula, far from the only disputed piece of land that once belonged to the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin earned the equivalent of $600, spent it on a coat he'd wear for the next 15 years. Must have been a sweet-ass coat. Spent the rest of his money at a resort in the Black Sea. He and his friends stuck into a ferry, headed to Odessa, and for two nights, he slept in a lifeboat. Maybe that's why he's doing what he's doing in Ukraine. He's still pissed. He had to sleep in a fucking lifeboat for two nights. Couldn't afford to stay at, at the resort. He wants Ukraine to recognize his power. He's not a lifeboat peasant anymore. 1972, Putin's mom wins a car after buying a lottery ticket and she gives it to her son. 
State-ran lottery had started in 1970. It was a huge hit, right? Keep impoverished people hopeful, less likely to rebel. Let them buy lotto tickets. Uh, this car was a big status symbol. Putin drove as often as he could. Maybe too much. His driving record was uh, not the best. Once hit a man, and in order to get out of trouble, I do love this. He supposedly told the police that the man was uh, trying to commit suicide. Guy jumped out in front of him, right? Listen, listen, hold up. This is no problem. I am I am good, strong uh, communist Russian man. The man I hit, uh, he's uh, he weak. He bad for Russia. He, uh, how I say, he throws himself in front of car. I, I know, I, I know. I hit him on sidewalk. But when he start to throw self, I drive toward him to help uh, rid Russia of weakness. To help all of Russia. Actually, uh, life was so shitty in Russia at this time, over 30,000 Russians a year in the 1970s threw themselves in front of cars trying to die. It was a huge problem. Russian automakers started fortifying their, uh, fortifying their cars. They would even work that into like their marketing campaigns. Buy new autovals, 2103. Now with new improved uh, sad, weak peasant bumper. Let those not strong enough to survive for Mother Russia throw selves under new, more durable tires as well. Do not let crunch of crybaby skull or uh, even spill morning vodka on way to work. Okay, maybe I made all of that up and uh, it wasn't actually a big problem. Uh, maybe Putin was just a bad driver. Uh, during school, Vladimir uh, interned with the criminal division of the local transportation ministry. He'd given up on joining the KGB for the moment, wanted to become an officer with a local prosecutor instead. Vladimir claimed, though, that in 1974, a stranger contacted him about a mysterious career assignment, refused to give any details. And then they met at the university's faculty lounge, as one does when a stranger offers a vague job possibility and wants to meet up. Vladimir claimed that he didn't learn until much later that the man worked for the KGB division that oversaw universities. 1975, KGB protege Putin graduates from Leningrad State University with a law degree. That summer begins his career with the KGB as an intelligence officer. He'll end up working with the KGB until 1990, when he'll retire with the rank of lieutenant colonel. Uh, At this point, the KGB oversaw domestic and foreign intelligence matters. Counterintelligence, border enforcement, protecting politicians, economic security, and because Russia harassing treasonous dogs who go against Communist Party. Putin started off working at the Secretariat of the Directorate, the personnel office of the Leningrad headquarters. He attended training at School 401 in Leningrad. I love the numbers with all these fucking places. That just cracks me up about the Soviet Union. Uh, first, I, uh, Vladimir, son of Vladimir, go to primary school at 314. Then I graduate. I study at secondary school, 498. Then I go college at State College 93. Then get job with KGB, study more at school 401. Live in communist apartment building, 17-164. Ah, uh, so fucking communist. Do not make anything special. Do not draw attention to yourself. Or school, be worker bee. No better than other bee in bleak, soulless hive. Uh, in the summer of 1976, 23-year-old Putin graduates, training as a first lieutenant, and transfers to the counterintelligence department, KGB's second chief directorate. Vladimir is in charge of internal intelligence. According to a biographer, he became a dedicated party member who sought, above all, to maintain social order and political control, though very little is known about his activities at the time. Six months later, he's transferred to the first chief directorate responsible for intelligence operations outside the Soviet Union now. This was considered to be an elite branch of the KGB. He's good at this shit. This whole time, Vladimir's still living at home with his parents, though, because Russia, what a country. Just because you're important KGB operative does not mean you'd be rewarded with enough rubles to live in your own tiny rat-infested closet toilet shithole. Uh, in his free time, 
Putin cruised around in his car, allegedly got into street fights, judoing random Russian citizens for funsies, said he felt above the law, used that to his advantage, you know, so he said. Or he stayed at home with mommy and daddy, watching whatever the fuck Russians watched in the 1970s. Maybe they watched their neighbors drink home-distilled vodka while their neighbors also watched them drink home-distilled vodka. Uh, 1979, Putin was promoted to captain at the KGB, sent to Moscow to attend the KGB higher school. Then he returned back to Leningrad to monitor foreigners. One supervisor said he was extremely productive, while another former KGB official said that the Leningrad agency failed to uncover a foreign spy in the city. Um, All right, so some people fans, some people not. Uh, By this point, Putin, 28, unmarried. Unusual in the Soviet Union. But then he dates a girl named Ludmila Kermina, a med student. They get engaged in 1979. They apply uh, for a marriage license. Parents buy them rings. I get him a suit, get her a dress. But then Vladimir suddenly breaks off engagement. Never explain why to anyone. Hmm. Maybe he finds it gross that she have vagina, not a penis, and strong bicep of strong Russian man, and that turned him off. Uh, more on why they say why I say that later. Uh, dude beyond homophobic, or at least pushes strong homophobic agenda as part of a political plan. Uh, March of 1980, Putin meets his future wife, another Ludmila, Ludmila Alexandrovna. Uh, she worked as flight attendant. She was visiting Leningrad with a friend, and her friend's boyfriend was friends with Vladimir. Ludmila initially not impressed with Vladimir's shabby appearance. I mean, he's not a looker. Uh, then during a play, uh, they all attended on their first night together. She asks if he can get them tickets to a performance the next night, and he does. He has some connections, shows off, uh, he goes with her, they start dating. She doesn't know he works for the KGB. He told her and everyone else that he worked for the Ministry of the Interior. He's already good at telling believable lies. He's much better now. Ludmila uh, felt that Vladimir was demanding and jealous, always watching and testing her. Sounds like a real piece of shit, but she stays with him. April of 1983, Putin proposes to Ludmila. <laughs> this is so good to me. I hope this is true. He supposedly said, according, <laughs> uh, supposedly said, according to a biographer, this is a quote. In three and a half years, you've probably made up your mind. And she said, yes, I have made up my mind. And then Vlad said, well then, if that's the way it is, I love you and propose that we get married. Oh, man, sweet communist Russian romance. So matter of fact, just so devoid of joy and passion. So just clinical. Ludmila, I think you make a good Russian wife and bearer of child. You have responded well to obedience training. I guess I love you. You're able to give me erection without much trouble. We'll marry in six months' time. I will breed you three times a week. Uh, you'll take strong Russian seed, mostly from front, sometime from back. Sometime I breed your mouth. We do not kiss for two days after I breed your mouth. Uh, there will be no cuddle, uh, not ever. You'll have food for me before and after breed. Before breed, you can talk a little bit, but not too much. Uh, do not talk to me. Uh, no words after breed. You do child race. I work, enjoy company of strong male comrade. We do guy stuff. We ride horse with no shirt. Uh, do other strong man stuff like wrestle, uh, sit naked in sauna, uh, play with each other's penises, hide them in mouth, while weak woman wives dust and vacuum and love kids. Little bit, but not too much to make them soft and weak. Uh, July 28th, 1983, Vladimir and Ludmila marry in a civil ceremony. I'm sure it was a lot of fucking fun. Uh, they start off their honeymoon in Kiev, Ukraine. Okay, so maybe he is romantic. That's why he's in Ukraine now. He just wants to uh, control his old honeymoon spot. Uh, when they get home, they move into his parents' apartment. 
Of course, there's plenty of room. Everyone can use closet toilets. Uh, just push rats aside. Uh, colleagues believe Putin only married to advance his career. KGB would not send unmarried men out of the country because they feared they would start sexual relationships with foreign women and then not come back home. That's another sign that your nation sucks. When you're afraid to send single people out of your country because you know they're, they're probably just going to fucking leave because they fucking hate living where you where uh, they grew up. Uh, 1984, 31-year-old Putin, promoted to major, sent to study in Moscow at the Red Banner Institute, the School of Foreign Intelligence, more KGB training. On April 28th, 1985, Putin's first daughter, Maria, is born. And she's doing pretty well for herself. Currently believed to be living in Moscow. She's a pediatric endocrinologist, uh, guessing with Putin as her daddy, not hurting for money. Uh, Putin had studied at the Red Banner Institute for a year at this point. The graduation commission would decide his next assignment based on his performance. And he gets assigned to Dresden, East Germany. The girls would grow up in uh, Germany primarily. This is his first time leaving the Soviet Union. August 31st, 1986, Putin's second daughter, uh, Yekaterina, is born. She's doing fucking great. Deputy Director of the Institute for Mathematical Research of Complex Systems at Moscow State University. Uh, director of the Inopraktika, I think, how do you say that? Uh, $1.7 billion development project to create a science center at Moscow State University. She has a master's degree in physics and mathematics, and she married the son of an oligarch and is uh, worth an estimated $2 billion. Uh, after the birth of uh, the couple's second and final child, Putin's marriage is struggling. He allegedly refused to help with raising his daughters uh, or take care of the house said he was provider and defender, and Ludmila was responsible for everything else. Uh, he also, I guess, uh, hated a lot of her cooking, refused to eat it, but wouldn't take the family out to eat. And when she get mad about this, he supposedly said a common aphorism. This is sad that this is fucking common over there, at least was. Uh, and, and this phrase is, don't pray as a woman, <laughs> or else you'll spoil her. How fucking sad if that's culturally like a normal thing to say. You ever tell your wife she's pretty? <laughs> what? What? You fucking crazy? You Americans tell them they're pretty. No. I say she's frumpy and fat and the cooking sucks. I keep her humble. I keep her sad. That's what we Russians, that's what make Russian dick hard. Sadness. Uh, he also never celebrated their wedding anniversary. What a peach. I bet he made OG uh, Vlad dad proud. He's a, he's a chip off the old taciturn and severe block. Uh, despite some marriage troubles, Putin's family enjoys a life of relative luxury. He joins a fishing club that allows him to visit forests and parks in Saxony. His family goes on vacations in Czechoslovakia. They own a stereo and an Atari. Oh, Atari. Uh, they had to keep their circle small. Ludmila, uh, only allowed to associate with people in the inner circle. Controlling, jealous, and an asshole. And that is who you want to lead in strong nation. Uh, 1990, Putin retires from the KGB, allegedly. Maybe the KGB just wanted people to fucking think he was retired. He's still doing covert work. You never know, truly. Uh, when Putin returns to Russia from East Germany, he now goes to work for the University of Leningrad, responsible for the university's external relations. Uh, this job puts Putin in contact with Anatoly Subchik, uh, the first democratically elected mayor of St. Petersburg after the fall of the Soviet Union in December of 91. And he becomes uh, Subchik's advisor and really just like right-hand man. Putin wins his confidence and earns a reputation as a man who is able to get things done. What kind of things? People who study Putin seem to think all kinds of illegal things. Maybe having rivals and detractors killed. Maybe making sure oligarchs and organized crime bosses get their bribes and kickbacks. St. Petersburg at the time, known as the gangster capital of Russia. The assumption is that Putin is hired to do uh, Subchik's dirty work and that he's very good at it. 1994, 41-year-old Putin becomes Subchik's first deputy mayor. While in this position, a huge food shortage hit St. Petersburg, and many Putin experts think Putin pocketed and or handed out a lot of the government aid. Millions of dollars worth, 
uh, for the, you know, that came with a shortage to uh, organize crime and oligarch friends he had made. Putin was investigated for all this, but the mayor he worked for dismissed the case against him, right? Nothing corrupt about that at all. Uh, numerous people who worked with Putin at this time spoke in a 2015 PBS frontline documentary called Putin's Way. And yeah, you know, they think he worked directly with the Russian mafia. According to one Russian investigator, the money was siphoned off to build Putin and some oligarch buddies of his vacation villas in Spain. 1996, Mayor Subcheck becomes the target of numerous corruption investigations, and he is defeated in the mayoral election. Uh, Putin resigns, moves to Moscow. Subcheck, while being investigated for corruption, has a heart attack at this trial, at his trial, and Putin then helps him get out of the country. Uh, send him to France for what was supposed to be just a few days of R&R to recover from his, quote, heart attack. But once in France, subject suddenly looks, uh, sh- excuse me, shockingly healthy. Uh, he'll stay in France until Putin has enough political power to drop all the corruption charges against him and bring him back in 1999, right after he becomes member of Boris Yeltsin's cabinet. Right? Uh, I'll take care of you, buddy. I'll take care of you. Uh, Putin still in 1996. And, and, you know, that guy took care of Putin. That guy gets drops a charge against Putin. Putin drops charges against him, essentially. Putin, still in 1996, joins Yeltsin's presidential staff as a deputy to the Kremlin's chief administrator. Putin quickly moves up the ranks in the Kremlin, continues to build his reputation as a guy who can get shit done. Guy willing to do fucking dirty work. 1998, Putin appointed director of the Federal Security Service, the domestic successor of the KGB under the Boris Yeltsin administration. So really, he's still KGB. Uh, He's in charge of the Kremlin's relations with regional governments. Uh, Yeltsin reportedly loves Putin, starts to lean on him. Yeltsin, at this point, is an aging alcoholic with some health problems, and uh, and he's pissed a lot of people in Russia off, right? He made a fucking mess of the country, uh, you know, selling off the country to the oligarchs when communism collapsed. He appoints Putin as head of his security council at some point in 98. Putin's mother, Maria, dies at the age of 87. Nothing I can find shares any details. Uh, if he's upset about it, he doesn't talk about it. Uh, August 2nd, 1999, Vladimir's father, OG Vlad, dies at the age of 88. No word on how Putin felt about uh, this. August 9th, 1999, Russian President Boris Yeltsin dismisses his prime minister, promotes former KGB officer Vladimir Putin. Vladimir, son of Vladimir, is now, you know, the, the fucking prime minister. Now he's famous. Now Russians, much of the world know his name. You know, he has, uh, he has high public approval ratings as prime minister. If you can trust Russian media's ratings, which I don't, I don't trust any information coming out of Russia, really. Uh, and not at least since, uh, since 1917, I'm open to, uh, I'm open to more information before 1917. Uh, but supposedly his public approval increased when he launched a military operation against the rebels in uh, Chechnya, a Republic in Russia, close to the Caspian sea in the second Chechen war, which lasts for about nine months of intense battling and then another 10 years as an insurgency, about 17,000 rebel soldiers will be killed. Up to 80,000 Chechen civilians will die. Roughly 7,500 Russian soldiers will die. Why was it fought? Excuse me, over Russian apartment bombings. Uh, the Russian apartment bombings were a series of explosions that hit four apartment blocks in Moscow and two other Russian cities in September of 1999, killing more than 300, injuring more than 1,000, spreading a wave of fear across the country. The bombings were bl- uh, blamed on Chechen rebels, but were they actually responsible? Many people doubt it. They think this was a actual false flag operation, a true false flag operation and an inside job. No real investigation of the bombings was ever allowed to be conducted. The crime scene almost immediately destroyed by state bulldozers coming in right after the bombings, removing the rubble along with human remains. Crime scene immediately destroyed by the state. Then, short time after, a fifth bomb is discovered. Uh, this is just a few days later in another apartment building in the city of uh, Riazan by some residents. Then it's determined by some local investigators that agents of the FSB, a.k.a. New KGB, 
planted this. The explosive device had all the markings of coming from the Russian military, not Chechen rebels or Chechen rebels, excuse me. Uh, numerous experts said the evidence pointed to the FSA, FSB uh, was behind the bombings, uh, that it was solid evidence, not conspiracy as Putin would try and claim. Uh, the fucking FSB did admit the bomb was one of their own eventually, but said there was never a plan to detonate it. It was just part of a, quote, training exercise. It was just a bomb in an apartment building found a couple days after four of their apartment buildings had been bombed. That's all. A, just a poorly timed secret training exercise. In hindsight, we just happened to leave an active explosive device. We forgot it. We were supposed to do the training exercise and we got distracted. Uh, the assertion that the government could have killed their own people was laughably dismissed by Putin. Uh, the government never allowed any charges related to this to move forward, conducted no investigation. Uh, also, no Chechens ever publicly convicted of the apartment bombings, but some did disappear after secret trials. That's fun. Uh, four primary Rust- uh, the, the four primary Russians who wouldn't leave allegations alone about all this and did try to investigate, they all quickly ended up dead under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> weird. What a weird coincidence. Uh, others were arrested, seemingly framed, and then tossed into prisons. Fucking Russia. Putin, though, his propaganda kept most of this away from the Russian public. And he was just uh, given, you know, positive media attention, given credit for protecting Russians from the dirty rebels that were never convicted because there was no evidence they actually did anything. And his political standing shot way up. Before the bombings, he was seen as having no chance of winning the upcoming presidential election. Now he was a national hero and front runner. Yeltsin was ready to hand him the keys to the Kremlin. Yeltsin was incredibly corrupt, had helped make, right, as I said, oligarchs billions. Aides and family members also enriched themselves while he was in power. And now he's worried about corruption charges coming for him if he steps down. But he knows Putin will help him just like he helped his old mayor buddy out. Uh, and Putin will. Uh, on December 31st, 1999, President Yeltsin resigns, appoints Putin as acting president until the next election. Uh, Putin's first act as president, dismiss all charges of corruption, uh, which were numerous against Yeltsin. How fun. Then he gets busy dealing with the mess he may have started when he might have orchestrated killing his own people to start that, uh, you know, Chechnya situation. Uh, actually, that mess has started a decade earlier when Yeltsin uh, started things in the first first Chechen, Chechen war. My tongue is just like, What? I don't want to do these words. 1992, uh, Chechnya officially declared independence from Russia. Chechnya was formerly part of the Soviet Union, but not one of the 15 official Soviet republics. Conquered by Russia in the 1850s when Russia pushed south towards the Middle East. Uh, The majority of the people of Chechnya are Muslim, have always wanted to assert their independence from Russia, despite Putin's continual claims to the contrary. President Yeltsin feared this would start a domino effect if they were allowed to leave with the Russian Federation. Uh, Also wanted Chechnya's oil. On December 11th, 1994, Russian forces entered Chechnya, marking the beginning of the largest Russian military offensive since the 1979 invasion of Afghanistan. Thousands of soldiers and tanks pour into Chechnya, very reminiscent of what's happened in Ukraine recently. By the end of the day, they pushed into the capital of Grozny. Uh, Chechen rebels fought back hard, killed thousands of Russian soldiers. In total, right, up to 10, uh, excuse me, up to 100,000 people died that year. In August of 1996, the Chechen rebels retook Grozny, Declared a ceasefire. 1997, the last Russian soldiers left Chechnya. A peace agreement left the uh, area as an independent state, kind of, but, you know, also part of Russia. Run your own show, but if we ever ask you to do anything, you fucking do it, or our tanks roll back in and just obliterate you. It was like that kind of deal. Then later, there was the second Chechen, role, or Chechen war we mentioned after the apartment bombings. 
in 2001 under Putin, mirroring what's happening now in Ukraine. Again, there are numerous reports of human rights violations by Russian soldiers. Uh, Chechen citizens started to disappear without a trace. Human rights watch groups found as many as 2,000 people go, uh, went missing. By the end of February 2001, a pile of over 50 bodies was found outside of Russia's military headquarters in the region. Clearly, they'd been tortured before being killed. The bodies had uh, been mutilated with razors, tied up, blindfolded, beaten, shot. Some of the people had been missing for months. These bodies, far from the only bodies that would turn up during the course of this decade-long conflict uh, with the markings of being tortured. Okay, now let's back up a bit to Putin's first election right after our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you, comrades, for listening uh, for Capitalist Pig Sponsor, for you to fill Western shallow hearts with materialist joy. Let us return now to world's greatest leader, first president of victor election. On March 26, 2000, Putin wins his first term as president of Russia with 53% of the vote. Was this election rigged? Uh, probably not, actually. Uh, he was riding a wave of popularity for saving Russia for from that uh, Chechen aggression. He wasn't really powerful enough yet to uh, rig elections. At least that's the uh, narrative. Uh, during his presidential campaign, during his, uh, his victory speech, he promises to rebuild Russia, end corruption, and create a regulated market economy. Putin reasserted tighter control over Russia's 89 regions and republics than Yeltsin had almost immediately, divides them into seven federal districts, each headed by a president-appointed representative, a.k.a. a Putin loyalist, also removes regional governor's rights to sit in the Federation Council, the upper house of Russia's parliament. This move gives the presidency, his presidency, more power. Putin also moves to reduce the power of Russia's financiers and media tycoons, the oligarchs, uh, by closing media outlets, launching criminal proceedings against some of them, the ones not loyal to him, set examples for the rest, do what you're told, this is going to happen to you. You know, some of them, his buddies, they, of course, you know, just keep getting rich. What's, what's the fucking point of running Russia if you can't help some oligarchs uh, get rich and then make sure that you get rich as well? After the 9-11 attacks in September 2001, Putin announces Russia's support for the U.S. in their anti-terror campaign. Putin offered use of Russia's airspace for humanitarian deliveries, help in search and rescue operations. He's, he's a good guy now. Uh, but when the U.S. then focuses their campaign on Saddam Hussein, Putin opposes U.S. Why? Well, he didn't like the West using 9-11 to increase their military presence near him in the Middle East. I, I can't blame him there. Putin also objected to President Bush's decision to abandon the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Don't blame him there either, actually. Uh, the U.S. decided to build up its ballistic missile and nuclear defense capabilities, reducing the odds of mutually assured destruction, keeping uh, a nuclear war from happening. Uh, there were concerns that the U.S. was doing this so that they could strike first with nukes, then be able to defend themselves against nuclear retaliation, which would increase the likelihood of nuclear war. Putin responds by adding to Russia's arsenal of nukes. Early of 2003, one of Russia's richest oligarchs, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, head of the Russian oil company Yukos Oil, 
wants to be able to do uh, more international business, have his company traded on the New York Stock Exchange, but the SEC wants proof that widespread Russian corruption won't affect his company. But widespread corruption was affecting his company. Uh, to a scale, he couldn't fix the books enough to hide all of it. So now he speaks in front of Putin and Russian parliament and in a televised session states that four separate independent organizations estimate that $30 billion a year are currently being lost to corruption in Putin's Russia. $30 billion go into the pockets of corrupt politicians, oligarchs, and organized crime members. Khodorkovsky uh, was hoping that Putin would choose a Western style of doing business instead of the Russian way, as he called it, of widespread bribes and corruption. Putin does not decide to go to the Western style. Instead, he has uh, Khodorkovsky uh, arrested on bullshit charges, dismantles his oil company, divides its assets amongst Putin loyalists. Russia's richest man will then go to serve 10 years in a Siberian labor camp fucking modern gulag. Uh, this is the equivalent to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, etc., accusing the government of corruption, then being arrested on trumped up charges, having their company taken from them, given to the president's buddies, then sent to Rikers Island or San Quentin or some shit for a decade. Play by Putin's rules, be punished. That's how it works. Uh, since getting out, Kordokoski uh, has lived in Switzerland in exile, or he first lived in Switzerland in exile for years and then moved to London. And he thinks Putin may have wanted to truly have a democracy at first, but after he took power, uh, you know, he moved further and further towards totalitarianism. And Kordovskowski, who has become wealthy once more and is perhaps Putin's biggest critic in exile, currently advocating Europe no longer buying oil from Putin. He thinks that will cripple him and possibly knock him out of power. Uh, March 2004, Putin is reelected for a second term as president. At the time, Russia's economy not doing well. Uh, excuse me. Russia's economy is doing well. Oil prices lead to a consumer boom and raise living standards. And that'll continue until 2008. Uh, this election uh, may have also been legitimate. He won over 70% of the vote. Uh, however, state-controlled media showed considerable bias towards Putin. Remember, he's a master of propaganda. If all the commercials and coverage you're watching make Putin look so much better than his rivals, what chance they really have in an election? December of 2004, Putin eliminates direct elections for regional governors and makes them Kremlin appointees. He claimed this was necessary to keep Russia together. Sounds like a blatant dictator move. Uh, was this necessary to keep Russia together or keep more of Russia loyal to Putin? April of 2005, Putin visits uh, visits Israel to meet with Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, making him the first uh, Russian you know, Kremlin leader to visit Israel. 2008, Vladimir Putin not eligible to run for a third consecutive term as president. So on May 7th, Putin's successor, uh, Dmitry uh, Medvedev, uh, is, uh, is appointed by him as Prime Minister of Russia, after Dmitry wins with over 70% of the vote. So now, you know, Dmitry, president, Putin, prime minister. Most foreign commentators and political analysts seem to believe that the transfer of presidential power that took place on May 7th, uh, 2008, was in name only, and Putin continued to retain the number one position in Russia's effective power hierarchy, with Dmitry just being a puppet figurehead. I think that Putin for sure was still, was still running shit from the shadows. Uh, same year, Dmitry extended pre presidential terms, from four to six years, setting shit up for Putin to rule for longer later, on Putin's orders, I imagine. Uh, Putin also announced he was going to be chairman of the United Russia Party, which had just won the majority in par parliament. 2010, number of U.S. celebrities. Uh, this is so good. <laughs> this is just, this is random. 2010, uh, number of U.S. celebrities, Kevin Cosner, Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell, many others, uh, along with a bunch of Russian oligarchs and high-ranking politicians, attend a, uh, attend a children's charity benefit in St. Petersburg. Putin takes a stage to sing a rendition of Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino that, thank God, still lives on the internet to this day. 
Music critics worldwide have unanimously declared Putin's performance as the single greatest musical achievement in the history of humanity. If you don't believe me, listen to this raw talent. Eat your fucking heart out, Yoko Ono. I found my on my God. On <laughs> when I found you, the moon stood still on Blueberry Hill. It is even more uncomfortable to watch than to listen to. And linger until he looks like a fucking robot that's breaking down while I'm He's so awkward up there. God, he's, ah, I I don't understand. Like, I guess he's just ruthless and, uh, you know, very good at like propaganda, but he's not, he never appears like charismatic. Like a lot of like dictators at least have some, some kind of charisma. He just seems like a fucking dork. Uh, just his, the way he composes himself, but I'm sure he's, you know, he's obviously a very scary dork. Uh, would I say that to his face? Ha no, probably not. Not unless it was like just me and him. And I had like distance between uh, him and I, and I was armed and he wasn't. Then, then I'd probably say all kinds of shit. Uh, September of 2011, uh, President Dmitry Medvedev announces that if United Russia wins the election, this, this uh, political party, he and Putin will trade positions as president and prime minister. Uh, that's not weird at all. Uh, Putin then is reelected as president of Russia on March 4th, 2012. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, you know, his buddy, Dmitry, gets to be prime minister. There are widespread protests and allegations of electoral fraud this time. This election seems like it was definitely fucking rigged. Uh, Putin strode onto a televised stage to declare his victory when only about 30% of the votes had been counted. Charges of vote rigging widespread. Thousands of Russians nationwide had signed up to monitor the election the whole day. Activists all over the place, constantly reporting uh, one instance after another of multiple voting, abuse of absentee ballots, obstruction of uh, election observers. Uh, And funny little detail, (laughs) when he... When he takes the stage to, you know, accept his, you know, new presidency, uh, a tear, one, a single tear slid slowly from his right eye as he stood before a cheering crowd. Then he utters a uh, fiery speech, which included talk of how the uh, U.S. was trying to destroy Russia and he's never gonna let that happen. A uh, speech more in keeping with the tough guy image he, you know, cult- carefully cultivated before. And then he blamed that, like publicly blamed that one tear on the wind. I just love that he felt like he had to address that. That's it. Listen, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Just for records, no tear. It's no tear. <laughs> it's wind. It's strong wind and uh, maybe some little rock. Get an eye for a second. No strong Russian man ever cry. Tears are for capitalist pigs. If daddy were alive and see that, that eye leak, he would have come up and punched me in the face. He is good father. Uh, May 7, 2012, Putin inaugurated as president. Points, uh, like I said, uh, Dmitry. His puppet, prime minister, never know when that lapdog is going to come in handy again. Uh, Putin successful in stifling election fraud protests. He has numerous protesters and some people uh, he ran against jailed. And that's, that's a good way to stifle protests. I mean, to be fair, fear, intimidation, tossing motherfuckers in prison. That generally gets people to calm down. Historically, it's, it's worked out well on a lot of different occasions. Uh, December of 2012, Putin signs into law a ban on U.S. adoption of Russian children. The legislation takes effect January 1st, 2013. Putin said this legislation would make it easier for Russians to adopt Russian orphans. The new law left almost 50 children who were in the final stages of adoption in legal limbo. Uh, Why would he do this? 
Partially, it was a reaction to the U.S. passing a law called the Magnitsky Act, punishing Russia for Sergei Magnitsky, an accountant ready to expose corruption and misconduct by the Russian government, uh, uh, being killed in a Russian prison before he could testify. Also, speculating here, I bet Putin felt it made Russia look weak to have kids it couldn't take care of. Kids that American pigs had to take care of and save. Uh, so did Russians then magically adopt all these Russian kids who needed adoption? Nope. According to a Moscow-based adoption advocacy group, Change One Life, Russia had roughly 600,000 orphans after uh, this law goes into effect that are not being adopted. So fucking great job, Putin. I'm sure it was way better for those kids to grow up in a roach and rat-infested fucking dump of a Russian orphanage than to grow up with a nice, loving U.S. family. Uh, June of 2013, super good guy, Putin, passes anti-gay laws that forbid gay couples from adopting children in Russia because fuck those 600,000 kids. Better let them slum in dilapidated orphanage than have two dad or two mom. Society obviously completely collapse if kid raised by two dicks or two pusses. Uh, What is wrong with our species? What is wrong with Putin? Uh, He also placed a ban on propagandizing non-traditional sexual relationships to minors. Okay. Uh, Putin starts uh, really framing homosexuality as a Western evil in speeches now. America, America wants you to start touching your dick to more dicks. So we no longer breed a strong Russian women with strong Russian baby. That's how they kill Russia. Dicks touching dicks. Uh, then he flashes back to his childhood wrestling match with Chiquitillo, right? And blushes when that thought makes him hard as fuck. Uh, JK. Uh, there's widespread international protest and response. Not JK about that. Uh, The same month, Putin announces that he and his wife are getting a divorce. Putin says uh, there are people who just cannot put up with it. uh, Ludmila Alexandrova has stood watch for eight, almost nine years. Uh, Ludmila said, our marriage is over because we hardly see each other. Vladimir Vladimirovich is immersed in his work. Our children have grown and are living their own lives. I bet she was so happy when it was all over. Uh, Putin may have left her for a mistress. He's always been very guarded regarding his romantic life. uh, Long rumored. He's dated Alina Kabeva, highly decorated, two-time Olympic medal winning, 38-year-old Russian former rhythm gymnast and model, uh, 21 years his junior. Rumored he has three kids with her and has set her up with a $10 million a year salary for a bullshit job. August 1st, 2013, Putin grants asylum to Edward Snowden, who was uh, wanted by U.S. authorities for leaking classified information. Snowden allowed to remain in Russia on the condition that he stopped bringing harm to our American partners. Yeah, right. I bet Putin uh, gave Snowden exile because of all the dirt on America that Snowden was able to give him. We'll be sucking Snowden uh, for sure at some point. Preliminary research already done. Uh, December 2013, Putin commemorates the 20th anniversary of the post-Soviet Constitution by releasing 25,000 inmates from Russian prisons. I wonder how many of those 25,000 he sent there on bullshit charges. Uh, One of those inmates, and none other than Andrei Chikatilo. What is big deal? I go a jerk, a shame cock and corner for more now. A free man. I bother no one. Okay, maybe I stab a few people so I come. I bother some people quite a bit, but not many. I love to wrestle. I, I live to wrestle. I love Russia. What the country? Uh, no, he didn't release Chikatilo. Uh, that dude had been executed back in the wild 90s. Uh, he also pardons his old oligarch buddy, Mikhail Kordovsky, former head of the Yukos oil conglomerate, who had been in prison for over a decade on bullshit charges. February 27, 2014, Putin invades Ukraine for the first time. Putin began the process of invading the Crimea part of Ukraine, uh, formerly part of Russia. Uh, bands of armed gunmen began seizing government buildings in Crimea. Uh, let's step away from the timeline and learn a little bit about the background of Russia and Ukraine now. This topic could easily be an entire suck into itself, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. Uh, 
but uh, we should know some stuff. Uh, Ukraine has historically been divided between those who view it as a part of Europe and those who view it as a part of Russia. In the decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, what is not disputed by anyone other than Putin and people who Putin's uh, propaganda is brainwashed or are people afraid to speak the truth because of uh, fear of Putin is that Ukraine moved towards integrating with the rest of Europe. The country declared their independence August 24th, 1991. Ukrainian voters support, uh, supported the move in a referendum on December 1st. In May of 1992, Ukraine then signed the Lisbon Protocol, agreeing to turn over their nuclear arsenal to Russia. Why would they do that? So Russia hopefully would not see this, uh, you know, new bordering nation as a military threat and would leave them the fuck alone uh, to avoid a disastrous military confrontation with Russia when they're just trying to establish their independence. Uh, Belarus and Kazakhstan also sign it. Then on January 10th, 94, Ukraine becomes a party to the Partnership for Peace, an agreement to strengthen political and military ties with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, an intergovernmental military alliance between 30 member states, of which 28 are in Europe and the other two in North America. NATO, now headquartered in Belgium, established in 1949 in Washington, D.C. by President Truman's administration as part of a Cold War strategy to make sure the Soviet Union didn't get any big fucking ideas about pushing communism into Europe. Without the threat Russia represents, there would be no NATO. Might be something similar, but not NATO. Uh, NATO was expanding into Eastern European nations in the late 90s, would end up accepting former communist nations, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Romania. And Putin did not like any of this. He fucking hated that these former pieces of the Soviet Union, satellite states like Poland, had turned their backs on Mother Russia and openly sided with the West. It's insulting. Now there were NATO nations directly bordering Russia as well. Russia really did not want Ukraine to join them. Also in 1994, Russia, Ukraine, the U.S., the U.K., they signed the Budapest Memorandum uh, memorandum to restate Ukraine's commitment to surrender their nuclear arsenal, and these nations pledged that they would acknowledge and respect Ukraine as an independent country. Then in 97, Russia and Ukraine signed the Treaty of Friendship to promise to respect each other's borders and preserve the rights of national minorities in each country. Currently, obviously, not too friendly. Russia kept the majority uh, of its Black Sea fleet and the rights to garrison 25,000 soldiers in Ukraine controlled Crimea. Ukraine received over $500 million in compensation for this. 2008, NATO announced its intentions to enroll Ukraine, but doesn't give a timeline. This is known as the Bucharest Declaration, and Putin is fucking furious. Putin has always insisted that Ukraine was part of Russia culturally and historically. He's always said that NATO is a threat to Russia. You know, he's not wrong about that. Putin would love to reestablish a Russian-dominated security zone like the one it had during the Soviet Union. Ukraine would be a wonderful buffer, wonderful part of that security zone. This is thought to be a major uh, reason why he's fucking up Ukraine right now, to create this buffer zone. Also, though, while the majority of Ukrainians, Western Ukrainians, have long preferred being allied with the West instead of Russia, there are many ethnic Russians there, uh, especially in the eastern part of Ukraine, and many of those would like to return to Russia. I'll never understand why, but they do. It's messy. Uh, These two nations have been tangled up for centuries. Here's a really skimpy overview of that entanglement. Uh, At the end of the 18th century, the last Russian empress, Catherine the Great, began the process of making Ukraine more Russian. That alleged horsefucker really did a lot to create the mess we have today. And yes, I know that the horse fucking stuff uh, with Catherine is slanderous propaganda. Uh, Beginning in the 1770s, large portions of present day Ukraine had fallen under Russian control. Catherine sent ethnic Russians into the area, passed laws requiring schools to teach Russian and stationed Russian soldiers in the area. In the 1800s, the Ukrainian language completely banned for a time. Then Ukraine first declared independence in 1917 with the founding of the Ukrainian People's Republic. But then in 1922, Russia took control back, made the country part of the Soviet Union. 
Putin does not acknowledge any of this real history. He claims that Ukraine very first asserted independence after World War II, right? And that is definitely not true. Propagandists love to rewrite history. In the 1930s, Stalin, not a big Ukrainian fan, causes a famine that kills millions of Ukrainians, particularly in the East. The uh, Holodomor, uh, we talked about in the Stalin suck and in the Chikatilo suck. It was fucking brutal. Stalin was punishing Ukrainian farmers who fought against communist collectivization mandates. And when they were dead, he repopulates the area with Russians. In the 1940s, Stalin also re- uh, relocated ethnic Tartars or Tatars. Ah, oh, that word is always so fucking weird to me. Uh, who lived in uh, Crimea and replaced them with Russians. Stalin also killed uh, lots of Crimean uh, Tatars and what amounted to a genocide. One in three of them would die. As Soviet rule weakened and collapsed from 1989 to 1991, approximately 250,000 Crimean Tatars uh, migrated back to their homeland. Excuse me for the mispronunciation of, mispronunciation of that word. My tongue is all fucking dizzy from trying to go back and forth between English and Russian pronunciations. Uh, they migrated back to their homeland on the shores of the distant Black Sea. As you can imagine, they're not big fucking fans of Russia, right? They don't want to become part of Russia once more. Uh, also in the 1940s, World War II. During World War II, Ukrainian nationalists initially saw the German Nazis as liberators from the Soviets. When Germany occupied the country from 1941 to 1944, a lot of Ukrainian independence fighters did align with the Nazis. They worked with them with the goal to establish their independence as a nation, but in the process, they also did participate in the Holocaust heavily. Between 1941 and 1943, Nazis and local collaborators did shit like shoot 70,000 to 100,000 people at Baba Yar, uh, a ravine on the outskirts of Kiev. One in four Jewish victims of the Holocaust murdered in, in Ukraine. Today, Russia is using that history to paint current Ukrainian nationalists as neo-Nazis. Uh, but also, millions of non-Jewish Ukrainians perished under German occupation as prisoners of war, slave laborers, soldiers, partisans, ordinary townsfolk, and peasants. A lot of the fighting in World War II took place in Ukraine, Belarus, World, uh, Western Russia. Under German occupation, several million Ukrainians sent to Germany to work farms and factories. Early in the war, Nazi racial hierarchy placed Ukrainians above Russians, and the Nazis attempted to promote Ukrainian national culture and occupied Ukrainian territories. Uh, Nazis promised they'd help Ukraine win independence after the war, but then towards the end of the war, they turned on the Nazis, or on the Ukrainians. It's almost, it's almost like you can't trust a Nazi. Uh, more on Ukrainian neo-Nazi ties uh, after we visit the current Ukrainian situation at the end of the episode. Because of all this history, while about two-thirds of Ukrainians speak Ukrainian as their first language, most of them living in Western Ukraine, the other one-third are Russian speakers living in Eastern Ukraine. And Western Ukrainians, by and large, do uh, do not particularly like Russia, see themselves as European. Traditionally, they've wanted to break away from Russia's control uh, for many years, have voted for candidates who support that, you know, over and over again. Eastern Ukraine, though, has voted for pro-Russian candidates. And it seems, according to polling in the last few years, about a half of them do want to rejoin Russia. So it's a fucking mess. So backing up, why exactly did Russia invade Crimea under Putin in February of 2014? Well, on November 21st, 2013, Ukrainian President Viktor uh, Yanukovych, Yanukovych had rejected a deal for greater integration into the EU. Instead, he took a $15 billion bailout from Russia. Why would he do that? Because he was a fucking puppet. Putin got his claws in him. Speculations that Putin had bought and paid for him. Many Ukrainians think that... Uh, Yanukovych, there we go, uh, was a corrupt politician controlled by Putin. His decision to side with Russia led to mass protests, which Yanukovych attempted to put down violently. The protests started in Kiev, November 21st, 2013. By December 8th, an estimated 800,000 people were protesting in Kiev. Uh, some 
some of the protesters included far-right Ukrainian nationalist groups who were violent. This is why Russia and some Ukrainians, particularly Eastern Ukrainians, saw the protests as disenfranchising Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And, you know, Putin has seized on that as part of his propaganda. Yanukovych tried to stop the protests by sending the internal security forces and passing laws to restrict freedom of speech and assembly, just like a good dictator does when their power is threatened. Uh, Then on December 17th, Putin promises to support Ukraine by offering a discount on natural gas and purchasing $15 billion in government bonds. Protests continue, culminate in the ousting of President Yanukovych in February of 2014. And the people rejoice, uh, the overwhelming majority of them. His mansion is raided, uh, massive celebrations in the streets. February 2nd or 22nd, Yanukovych flees to Russia when parliament votes to remove him as president. He's still hiding there today, being another good little lapdog for Putin. January 24th, 2019, he was sentenced in absentia to 13 years imprisonment for high treason by a Ukrainian court. Many believe that should Putin ever topple Kiev, he will put Yanukovych back into power. After Yanukovych fled, Putin refused to recognize the new interim government in Kiev as a legitimate government. He requested parliamentary approval to send soldiers into Ukraine to safeguard Russian interests. And he gets approval because he's a dictator and they would be suicidal idiots to deny him this approval. So now Putin invades. He annexes Crimea March of 2014. Among the new Russian Federation authorities, first measures after annexing Crimea to ban the the Crimean uh, Tatars parliament. They also arrest, torture, and kill Crimean Tatar activists. Thousands of Crimean Tatars, uh, I always want to say Tartars, but (laughs) Tatars, I guess, uh, fled Russian oppression in Crimea following his 2014 annexation. Many settled in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Uh, Why is Crimea important to Putin? Because it's a peninsula in the Black Sea with special autonomy, large Russian military base. Uh, The invasion provoked separatist uprisings in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, two regions in eastern Ukraine as well. And fighting continues there for years. Ukraine ambassador to the UN, Yuri Sergeyev, uh, claimed that about 16,000 soldiers invaded Crimea. And that got the attention of Europe and the U.S., U.S. and the EU refused to accept legitimacy of a referendum in which the majority of the Crimean population supposedly voted to secede from Ukraine and rejoin Russia. This vote, seen by most rational people in the world, as being obvious Putin bullshit. Lies and propaganda rigged. Uh, Putin defended his actions, insisted that the soldiers he sent into Ukraine were only meant to enhance military defenses already, already within the country. Bullshit. Definitely wasn't. Uh... Uh, you know, Eastern Ukraine has vast coal and iron supplies as well as fertile farmland and Russia wanted those resources. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, wasn't to uh, have more naval control of the Black Sea, to have a buffer zone between Russia and NATO. No, huh? he's just, uh, you know, reinforcing people who are already there. Uh, Putin denies accusations that Russia intended to engage Ukraine in war, which is absurd. Putin said he was granted permission from the upper house of Russia's parliament to use force in Ukraine, uh, but felt it was unnecessary. Denied speculation there would be further invasion of Ukraine. Uh, such a measure would certainly be the very last resort, he said. He does this weird shit where like he's over there, soldiers are killing lots of people. And he's like, no, we're not going to use force. No, no, come on. Uh, although internationally it has uh, still been recognized as being part of Ukraine, Russia has controlled Crimea now since this 2014 invasion. Okay. Uh, I know there was a lot of information. A little overview com- uh, complete. Let's now dive a little deeper into the timeline. We'll get back to Ukraine in a bit. September 28th, 2015, in an address before the UN General Assembly, Putin presents his version, his vision of Russia as a world power, paints the U.S. and NATO as threats to global security. Uh, not quite, but close. Uh, U.S. and NATO are threats to Russian security, for sure, which is why they're so fucking important. If the U.S. was much weaker, 
and NATO was as well, I think the global map would look very different than it does right now. I think Russia would own a lot more land. In September of that year, the UN estimates that 8,000 people have been killed, 1.5 million people displaced as part of the conflicts in Ukraine. Uh, These recent atrocities in Ukraine, nothing new. Ukraine has been getting fucked over by Mother Russia for a long time. Uh, September of 2015, Russia announces they will begin strategic airstrikes in Syria now. The government promised that the military action was meant to target extremist uh, group, the Islamic State, right? ISIS, which had made advances in the region due to the civil war in Syria. Putin's true, moto- true motives, though, called into question. Analysts and government officials believe the airstrikes were aimed at the rebels attempting to overthrow President Bashar al-Assad. The U.S. wanted Assad out. Putin wanted him in. Why? It's thought partially to send a message to other despots, right? Stick with Russia. Russia will protect you from the U.S. and some kind of CIA-led regime toppling. Also to send a message to the U.S. You cannot impose your will in lands near Mother Russia. We are still a formidable Cold War foe. Putin will win this uh, backdrop battle of sorts between the U.S. and Russia in Syria because Assad is still in charge. 2016. Putin shifts the balance of power in Syria, right? With this, with this shit. Evidence emerges that Russia was conducting a wide-ranging hybrid warfare campaign intended to undermine the power and legitimacy of Western democracies. Russian fighter jets violated NATO airspace in the Baltic. Uh, Russia also initiated two cyber attacks on Ukrainian power grid. Ukraine reported that the country was subjected to over 6,000 cyber attacks over a two-month period. Ukrainian investigators linked the campaign to Russia. Uh, authorities also uncovered a plot to assassinate the Montenegrin prime minister and install a pro-Russian government there. Montenegrin prosecutors uncovered a conspiracy that linked nationalist Serbians, pro-Russian fighters in eastern Ukraine, and a pair of Russian intelligence agents to the coup. More Cold War shit. July of 2016, thousands of private emails of members of the Democratic Party in the U.S. published by WikiLeaks. A few days later, the FBI opened an investigation into Russia's efforts to influence the election and connections to Trump's campaign. Trump joked that Russia released the emails because Putin likes me, He also invited Russia to find Clinton's 30,000 emails that are missing. Trump denied that Putin was attempting to sway the election in his favor. U.S. intelligence reports, however, tell a different story. Putin for sure used his troll farms and Twitter bots to help Trump win the 2016 election. And Putin helped Trump again in 2020. And because so many are so very sensitive to any critique of Trump whatsoever, uh, I've literally never met people more sensitive in my life to having their favorite politician critiqued in any way. This is not slander I'm making up. This is part of this research, right? You can go online. You can easily find the government reports yourself, uh, which QAnon truthers, of course, will say are nothing more than deep state propaganda, which I don't believe for a second. Uh, Also, please don't forget that critiquing the president, any president, is a good American thing to do. I don't know why that's gotten lost last uh, several years. Uh, It represents freedom. Trying to scream down your, uh, you know, critiques, the people who are critiquing your president, trying to scream those people down. Um, you know, if, if you're the person that, that does that, maybe you should move to Russia because I bet Putin would fucking love you. Autocrats love a loyalist who does not tolerate dissent, right? Who doesn't tolerate people who step outside of party lines. Like who you want to like, but also maybe be tolerant of those who don't agree with you. That feels like the most American thing to do to me. I'm proud to have friends who voted for Biden. I have other friends, uh, you know, I'm proud to have friends who voted for Trump. You actually don't have to pick one side and hate the other. You can talk to the side you don't morally line up with and listen to what they have to say. Uh, try and influence their hearts and minds on the issues that matter most to you. Most people respond better to thoughtful discourse than they do to fuck you, you idiot, you're wrong. But, uh, you know, fuck Putin. Uh, December 2017, Putin announced he is ordering Russia to begin withdrawing from Syria. Their two-year campaign to destroy ISIS was complete, he stated. 
but Russia may return if violence continued. At the end of uh, 2017, Putin reported his end-of-the-year press conference that he would run for a six-year term in 2018 as an independent candidate. He ends his association with the United Russian Party. Why? Fucking who cares? Political theater. Doesn't matter what party he's a member of. The only party in Russia that matters is whatever party Putin's a member of. He's a dictator. The rest is all window dressing, just a dog and pony show. March of 2018, despite Russia being in an economic depression, Putin's approval rating remains above 80%. Hmm. Interesting that he would poll so well when he consistently rigs the polls. That's weird. Uh, He seems certain he would win in the upcoming election. I'd be certain too, if my loyalist goons were in charge of making sure I, uh, you know, won the quote unquote counted votes. Uh, He made sure to have government media outlets criticize his opponents, uh, also barred others from running (laughs) just completely. That helps win an election for sure. Just two weeks before the election, Sergei Skripal, a former Russian intelligence officer convicted of spying for Britain, who was released to the UK in a prisoner swap, is found unconscious with his daughter in Salisbury, England. Investigators believe that they uh, had been exposed to Novichok, a complex nerve agent developed by the Soviets. Britain accuses Putin of ordering this attack at a detractor. Excuse me, a Prime Minister Theresa May expels almost two dozen Russian intelligence operatives from the country. March 19th, 2018. Wouldn't you know it, Putin wins another term as president of Russia. Oh man, good for him. He's so popular. Uh, he gets more than 76% of the vote. Ah, oh, great job. Independent monitoring agency, Golos, found that Putin used ballot stuffing to increase voter turnout. Putin called his election an incredible victory and he'll remain in office until 2024 or until he dies or is overthrown in a violent coup or that. Uh, after winning, or yeah, yeah, Putin bragged about having new weapons that would render NATO's defenses completely worthless claimed to have a low-flying nuclear-capable cruise missile with unlimited range and another missile capable of traveling at hypersonic speed. Uh, does a little demonstration video that includes an animation of simulated attacks on the United States. So that's super fun. Not worrisome at all. Oh, man, he's our buddy. Ha <laughs> We can trust him. Uh, May 20th, 2019, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky elected as president of Ukraine on a populist reform platform. That motherfucker. Goddamn champion. Gonna have to suck him one day. Living legend. I don't pray, but if I did, I would pray to God, uh, please save this man. Guide him to continued strong leadership in Ukraine. Hail Nimrod. In Putin's January 2020 State of the Nation speech, he proposes constitutional amendments that include transferring power to select prime minister uh, to select the prime minister and cabinet from the president to the parliament. His cabinet, including Dmitry uh, Medvedev, uh, he resigns finally, saying that a new government will give Putin the opportunity to make the decisions he needs to make. Putin also suggests limiting presidential terms to just two, indicating he won't attempt to seek a third consecutive term. Now, what's he doing here? No one knows. But I can't imagine him stepping down in 2024. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe he was thinking about touring the world as America's, excuse me, as Russia's. Oh, wow, big difference. Uh, Greatest living songbird. Yeah, it's so good. Man, that guy can really carry a tune. Uh, April of 2021, Putin signs a new law allowing him to have two more term limits. He changed his mind. <laughs> he just JK earlier. Now he can remain in power until at least 2036. There we go. That's the real Putin. Ah, bummer for music fans, though. No sold out international tour. Starting in October of 2021, Putin orders a buildup of Russian forces along the Ukrainian border, sends additional units to his buddies in Belarus. Putin denies plans to invade the Ukraine. No, he's not going to do that. 
Uh, the military presence on the border goes from scattered groupings of bases and training grounds to units arrayed in tactical directions, but he's not going to invade. <laughs> Get out of here. Come on. He's running training exercises. He's working on defending himself from the super aggressive Ukrainian Nazis who are going to invade Russia at any second, which was never going to fucking happen. December of 2021. Russia begins moving soldiers, tanks, and heavy artillery into new positions. Most of it focused on the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, December 17th, 2021, Putin presents a list of demands to ensure Russian security, guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO, uh, that NATO reduce forces in Eastern European countries, that a 2015 ceasefire be implemented, you know, re-implemented, that NATO uh, withdraw military infrastructure put in Eastern Europe after 97, that NATO countries will not deploy offensive weapons in states neighboring Russia ever, uh, including countries not even in NATO, and a ban on military exercises at strengths of more than a brigade zone along both sides of Russian uh, western border, uh, sides of Russian's western border, and pinky swear. You guys will never fuck with us, ever. Uh, the West dismisses his demands. They're never taken seriously. President Biden makes it clear that the U.S. will not be sending soldiers, but will send anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons to Ukraine and increase American military presence in NATO countries bordering Russia. He orders an extra 7,000 soldiers to Eastern Europe. January 2022, Russia moves more equipment and soldiers to Belarus, just doing some training. February 4th, 22, Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping of China meet in Beijing for their 38th summit meeting. Afterwards, they announce a no-limits partnership, making it clear they're united in their hostility against American global power. Fuck yeah. Russia, China, strengthen their relationship. The Western world breaks out into a cold sweat. February of 2022, there are now 190,000 soldiers at the Ukrainian border in Crimea, Belarus, and a fucking small breakaway state in Moldova that I've literally never heard of before in my life, Transnistria. Transnistria. There's like seven people there. Amphibious units deployed to the Black Sea under the guise of scheduled naval exercises. February 21st, 2022, Putin recognizes the independence of the People's Republics of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, voiding a previous peace agreement. Pro-Russian separatists in the area claim all of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, but they really only control about a third of the region. Russian soldiers ordered into the area. February 24th, 2022, Putin announces the beginning of a special military operation in Ukraine in a televised speech. Not a, not a battle. It's just like a special, it's like a special operation. It's just, it's a friendly special operation. Uh, Bloomberg published a transcript of his speech. Uh, it's a long one, but it provides a lot of insight into Putin's mind. And I think it's worth sharing in its entirety. I also think for entertainment purposes, and it actually makes the words easier to say, I should give it in a shitty Russian accent. And hopefully that'll make it less boring in parts instead of, you know, just being uh, uh, annoying. So let me get the proper uh, Russian, the communist music, because he still feels communist to me. Citizens of Russia, friends, I am more than just songbird. I also man, strong man who I, f- I finally feel comfortable say this in public. I love embrace of other strong men. I love it so much. I love more than strong men embrace. Listen to me. I want to breed with men. Many men. I know this may be shock, but signs were there. Hold tight. How many pictures of me with no shirt do one need? How much must I demonize him of homosexuals? Why? Because... I fight in one tier right now. I secretly hate self. I have daddy issue. Okay, I admit it. It wasn't that wind. I did have feeling that one day. 
I just, I so angry, not at Ukraine, but at, at daddy. He, he know I like men. It's why I want to wrestle instead of box. I like, I like to wrestle. I like to push groin on buttock of strong man. I want strong man to push groin on the face. I want, I can't believe I say this. I want strong man to braid my mouth. I want to choke and come in this cock. It's all I ever want. I, Putin, want strong man to steal curtain me, which is sex move I invent. It's it when man drop balls on my, my eye socket. All I can see, communist man meat. Well, he do this. Another communist man, strong, handsome man, put breed penis in mouth. All I taste is strong Russia. Well, he do that. Another strong Russian man, breathe my butthole. I want only to feel Russia. While he do that, another strong Russian man let me breathe his mouth. While he do that, another strong Russian man pull on my bald bit. While he do that, 40, 50 other strong Russian man bukaki me. I want to cover Russian body in Russian semen. I wish for America greatest superstar, Steven Seagal, to supervise whole super situation. Everyone is coming except Steven for he is American. He can only supervise. Maybe he can film. Please, citizens of Russia, give me your strong men for pleasure. Let me drown. I, Putin, want to drown in Kami Kam. Okay, maybe that wasn't exactly his speech. God, I hope someone got comments loud during that section. Oh, boy. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, here's the real speech. Here's the real speech. I'll start over. Citizens of Russia, friends. I consider it necessary today to speak again about the tragic events in Donbass and the key aspects of ensuring the security of Russia. I will begin with what I said in my address on February 21st, 2022. I spoke about our biggest concerns and worries and about the fundamental threats which irresponsible Western politicians created for Russia consistently, rudely, and unceremoniously from year to year. I am referring to the eastward expansion of NATO, which is moving its military infrastructure ever closer to Russian border. It is a fact that over the past 30 years, we have been patiently trying to come to an agreement with the leading NATO countries regarding the principles of equal and indivisible security in Europe. In response to our proposals, we invariably faced either cynical deception and lies for attempts at pressure and blackmail, while the North Atlantic Alliance continued to expand despite our protests and concerns. This military machine is moving and, as I said, is approaching our very border. Uh, yeah, NATO won't work with Russia because Russia is sketchy as fuck and has been for centuries. Why is this happening? Where did this insolent manner of talking down from the height of their exceptionalism, infallibility, and all-permissiveness come from? What is the explanation for this contemptuous and disdainful attitude to our interests and absolutely legitimate demands? Ah, interesting word choice here. Permissiveness. Permissive as in more freedom? Framing freedom here as something disgusting? Something weak, maybe? The answer is simple. Everything is clear and obvious. In the late 1980s, the Soviet Union grew weaker and subsequently broke apart. Uh, yeah, it broke apart because it fucking sucks. And the Russian people hated their shitty-ass lives. That experience should serve as a good lesson for us because it has shown us that the paralysis of power and will is the first step towards complete degradation and oblivion. 
We lost confidence for only one moment, but it was enough to disrupt the balance of forces in the world. As a result, the old treaties and agreements are no longer effective. Entreaties and requests do not help. Anything that does not suit the dominant state, the powers that be, is denounced as archaic, obsolete, and useless. At the same time, everything it regards as useful is presented as the ultimate truth and forced on others regardless of the cost, abusively and by any means available. Those who refuse to comply are subjected to strong-arm tactics. What I am saying now does not concern only Russia, and Russia is not the only country that is worried about this. This has to do with the entire system of international relations, and sometimes even U.S. allies. The collapse of the Soviet Union led to a redivision of the world, and the norms of international law that developed by that time, and the most important of them, the fundamental norms that were accepted following World War II, and largely formalized its outcome, came in the way of those who declared themselves the winners of the Cold War. Of course, practice international relations, and the rules regulating them had to take into account the changes that took place in the world and in the balance of forces. However, this should have been done professionally, smoothly, patiently, and with due regard and respect for the interests of all states and one's own responsibility. Instead, we saw a state of euphoria created by the feeling of absolute superiority, a kind of modern absolutism, coupled with the low cultural standards and arrogance of those who formulated and pushed through decisions that only suited themselves. The situation took a different turn. Another interesting choice of words here. Low cultural standards. What the fuck does that mean? Uh, do countries who don't share Putin's homophobia have low cultural standards? That feels like the subtext I was picking up. There are many examples of this. First, a bloody military operation was waged against Belgrade without the UN Security Council sanction, but with combat aircraft and missiles used in the heart of Europe. The bombing of peaceful cities and vital infrastructure went on for several weeks. I have to recall these facts because some Western colleagues prefer to forget them. And when we mention the events, they prefer to avoid speaking about international law, instead emphasizing the circumstances which they interpret as they think necessary. Then came the turn of Iraq, Libya, and Syria. The illegal use of military power against Libya and the distortion of all the UN Security Council decisions on Libya ruined the state, created a huge seat of international terrorism, and pushed the country towards a humanitarian catastrophe into the vortex of a civil war, which has continued there for years. The tragedy which was created for hundreds of thousands, even millions of people, not only in Libya, but in whole region, has led to a large-scale exodus from the Middle East and North Africa to Europe. And I have to say, uh... Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I make some fair points there. Uh, the U.S. Done, has done whatever the fuck it's I uh, wanted to do in many of these instances. And, uh, you know, I don't think our political goals abroad are always noble. Uh, interesting, though, that Putin would denounce a humanitarian catastrophe uh, while currently committing a humanitarian catastrophe uh, in Ukraine. A similar fate also prepared for Syria. The combat operations conducted by the Western coalition in that country without the Syrian government's approval or UN Security Council's sanction can only be defined as aggression and intervention. But the example that stands apart from the above events is, of course, the invasion of Iraq without any legal grounds. They used the pretext of allegedly reliable information available in the United States about the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. To prove the allegation, the U.S. Secretary of State held up a vial with white powder publicly for whole world to see, assuring the international community that it was chemical warfare agent created in Iraq. It later turned out that all of that was a fake and a sham 
and that Iraq did not have any chemical weapons. Incredible and shocking, but true. Yeah, not our finest moment. Uh, important reminder to try and be an honest, incredible nation so that the Putins of the world can't use our mistakes to help legitimize uh, their fucking propaganda. Right, because this is very hypocritical for him to say all this. We witness lies made at the highest state level and voiced from the high UN rostrum. As a result, we see a tremendous loss in human life, damage, destruction, colossal upsurge in terrorism. I wonder if he at least smirked a little bit when the master of lies talked about witnessing lies made at the highest state level. I mean, come on. Overall, it appears that nearly everywhere in many regions of the world where the United States brought its law and order, this created bloody, non-healing wounds in the course of international terrorism and extremism. I've only mentioned the most glaring but far from only examples of disregard for international law. This array includes promises not to expand NATO eastwards, even by an inch. To reiterate, they have deceived us. Or to put it simply, they have played us. Sure, one often hears that politics is a dirty business. It could be, but it shouldn't be as dirty as it is now, not to such an extent. This type of con artist behavior, contrary, not only to the principles of international relations, but also and above all to the generally accepted norms of morality and ethics. Where is justice and truth here? Just lies and hypocrisy all around. Uh, hello, pot calling kettle black. Oh boy. Incidentally, U.S. politicians, political scientists, and journalists write and say that the veritable empire of lies has been created inside the United States in recent years. It is hard to disagree with this. It is really so. Uh, yeah, the empire of lies uh, has been built in the U.S. largely by Russian fucking troll farms and disinformation bots. Uh, thanks, Putin. But one should not be modest about it. The United States is still a great country and the system forming power. All its satellites not only humbly and obediently say yes to and parrot it at the slightest pretext, but also imitate its behavior and enthusiastically accept the rules it is offering them. Therefore, one can say with good reason and confidence that the whole so-called Western bloc formed by the United States in its own image and likeness is, in its entirety, the very same empire of lies. This is starting to feel like a declaration of uh, World War III. Uh, definitely a declaration of the Cold War is alive and well. As for our country, after the disintegration of the USSR, given the entire unprecedented openness of the new modern Russia, its readiness to work honestly with the United States and other Western partners, and its practically unilateral disarmament, they immediately tried to put the final squeeze on us, finish us off, and utterly destroy us. This is how it was in the 1990s and in the early 2000s when the so-called collective West was actively supporting separatism and gangs of mercenaries in southern Russia. What victims, what losses we had to sustain, what trials we had to go through at that time before we broke the back of the international terrorism in the Caucasus. We remember this and we will never forget. Properly speaking, the attempts to use us in their own interest never ceased until quite recently. They sought to destroy us our traditional values, and force on us their false values that would erode us, our people from within, the attitudes they have been aggressively imposing on their countries, attitudes that are directly leading to degradation, degeneration, because they are contrary to human nature. This is not going to happen. No one has ever succeeded in doing this, nor will they succeed now. This feels like uh, thinly veiled uh, homophobic rhetoric. Contrary to nature. Sometimes it really does feel like he's... Uh, 
homosexual to me and just hates himself and then takes out that hatred on uh, you know fellow homosexuals. Uh, maybe he did get in street fights as a youth. Maybe he was gay bashing. Just to rile him up, if any hackers from Anonymous or some similar uh, powerful hacking collective are listening, maybe consider a disinformation campaign centered around stories revolving Putin being a, a power bottom. Uh, do some cool shit with Photoshop. Uh, you know, show Steven Seagal uh, bending him over in the Kremlin or something. Try to get some mainstream media outlets to report the story. See how he reacts. I think it'd be funny. Unless, you know, that's how a nuclear apocalypse kicks off. But, you know, then sure, I'm gonna have a lot of people mad at me. But also, getting the world destroyed over a joke like that is a pretty funny way to go out. Uh, Back to the speech. Despite all that, in December 2021, we made yet another attempt to reach agreement with the United States and its allies on the principles of European security and NATO's non-expansion. Our efforts were in vain. The United States has not changed its position. It does not believe it necessary to agree with Russia on a matter that is critical for us. The United States is pursuing its own objectives while neglecting our interests. Of course, the situation begs a question. What next? What are we to expect? If history is any guide, we know that in 1940 and early 1941, the Soviet Union went to great lengths to prevent war or at least to lay its outbreak. To this end... The USSR sought not to provoke the potential aggressor until the very end by refraining or postponing the most urgent and obvious preparations it had made to defend itself from imminent attack. When it finally acted, it was too late. As a result, the country was not prepared to counter the invasion by Nazi Germany, which attacked our motherland on June 22, 1941, without declaring war. The country stopped the enemy and went on to defeat it, but this came at a tremendous cost. The attempt to appease the aggressor ahead of the Great Patriotic War was proved to be a mistake, which came at a high cost for our people. In the first months after the hostilities broke out, we lost vast territories of strategic importance, as well as millions of lives. We will not make this mistake the second time. We have no right to do so. Uh, Comparing Ukraine to Nazi Germany is a fucking stretch. It's actually nonsense, as I'll point out later. Those who aspire to global dominance have dominance have publicly designated Russia as their enemy. They've done so with impunity. Make no mistake, they had no reason to act this way. It is true they have considerable financial, scientific, technological, and military capabilities. We are aware of this and have an objective view of the economic threats we have been hearing, just as our ability to counter this brash and never-ending blackmail. Let me reiterate that we have no illusions in this regard and extremely are realistic in our assessments. As for military affairs, even after the dissolution of the USSR and losing a considerable part of its capabilities, today's Russia remains one of the most powerful nuclear states. Moreover, it certainly has advantages in several cutting-edge weapons. In this context, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. Uh, once again, interesting choice of words here. Not uh, aggressor, potential aggressor. Uh, this is great propaganda framing. By adding the word potential, uh, attacking a sovereign nation like Ukraine in an unprovoked fashion is no longer seen as uh, an offensive military act, right? It's defensive. You're no, longer, you're no longer really throwing the first punch. You're reacting to them making a fist and obviously planning to punch you. You're defending yourself from future aggression by technically punching them in the face first. Uh, dude is very good at propaganda. At the same time, technology, including the defense sector, is changing rapidly. One day there is one leader, tomorrow another. 
but a military presence in territories bordering on Russia, if we permit it to go ahead, will stay for decades to come or maybe forever, creating an ever-mounting and totally unacceptable threat for Russia. Even now, with NATO's eastward expansion, the situation for Russia has been becoming worse and more dangerous by the year. Moreover, these past days, NATO leadership has been blunt in its statements that they need to accelerate and step up efforts to bring the alliance's infrastructure closer to Russia's borders. In other words, they have been toughening their position. We cannot stay idle and passively observe these developments that would be an absolutely irresponsible thing for us to do. I mean, he's not wrong here. You know, for him to keep uh, his totalitarian regime going, he does need to take NATO seriously. NATO doesn't like him. And NATO has been bringing their infrastructure closer to Russia's borders because, you know, Russia, Putin's Russia, is a serious threat. And uh, my oh my, how this invasion is now backfiring on Putin, right? right? NATO is going to ramp up their militarization fucking big time now. And I'm all for it. Uh, At the end of the day, someone has to have the biggest swinging dick over there and better us in NATO than Mother Russia. Uh, Back to Putin. Any further expansion of the North Atlantic Alliance's infrastructure or the ongoing efforts to gain a military foothold of the Ukrainian territory are unacceptable for us. Of course, the question is not about NATO itself. It merely serves as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. The problem is that in territories adjacent to Russia, which I have to note is our historical land, a hostile anti-Russia is taking shape. Fully controlled from the outside, it is doing everything to attract NATO armed forces and obtain cutting-edge weapons. For the United States and its allies, it is a policy of containing Russia with obvious geopolitical dividends. For our country, it's a matter of life and death, a matter of our historical future as a nation. This is not an exaggeration. This is fact. It is not only a very real threat to our interests, but to the very existence of our state and to its sovereignty. It is red line, which we have spoken about on numerous occasions. They have crossed it. This brings me to the situation in Donbass. We can see that the forces that staged the coup in Ukraine in 2014 have seized power, are keeping it with the help of ornamental election procedures, and have abandoned the path of a peaceful conflict settlement. For eight years, for eight endless years, we have been doing everything possible to settle the situation by peaceful political means. Everything was in vain. Uh, For eight years, actual democracy has existed in Ukraine. Uh, Of course, Putin hates that. It's fucking puppet got kicked out. As I said in my previous address, you cannot look without compassion at what is happening there. It became impossible to tolerate it. We had to stop the atrocity, the genocide of the millions of people who live there, uh, who pinned their hopes on Russia, on all of us. It is their aspirations, the feelings and pain of these people that was the main motivating force behind our decision to recognize the independence of Donbass People's Republics fucking millions of people what the fuck is he talking he is pulling this shit literally completely out of his ass this is based in fucking nothing this is exaggeration distortions outright lies and just so much propaganda it's unbelievable I would like to additionally emphasize the following focused on their goals the leading NATO countries are supporting the far right nationalists and neo-nazis in Ukraine those who will never forgive the people of Crimea and uh, Sevastopol for freely making a choice to reunite with Russia They didn't didn't fucking do that. Uh, They will undoubtedly try to bring war to Crimea just as they have done in Donbass, to kill innocent people, just as members of the punitive units of Ukrainian nationalists and Hitler's accomplices did during the Great Patriotic War. They have also openly laid claim to several other Russian regions. I can't wait to address the neo-Nazi shit. It's fucking unreal. If we look at the sequence of events and the incoming reports, the showdown between Russia and these forces cannot be avoided. 
It is only a matter of time. They are getting ready and waiting for the right moment. Moreover, they went as far as to aspire to acquire nuclear weapons. We will not let this happen. <laughs> Such bullshit. Some politicians in Ukraine have advocated for acquiring nuclear weapons again, but nothing has come close to being legislated. Again, you can't blame an entire country for the statements of a few of its politicians. I mean, I guess you can, but you should not because that is not a logical thing to do. I've already said that Russia accepted this new geopolitical reality after the dissolution of the USSR. We have been treating all new post-Soviet states with respect and will continue to act this way. We respect and will respect their sovereignty as proven by the assistance we provided to Kazakhstan when it faced tragic events and the challenge in terms of its statehood and integrity. However, Russia cannot feel safe, develop and exist while facing a permanent threat from the territory of today's Ukraine. Get the fuck out of here. Let me remind you that in 2000, 2005, we used our military to push back against terrorists in the Caucasus and stood up for the integrity of our state. We preserved Russia. In 2014, we support the people of Crimea and Sevastopol. In 2015, we used our armed forces to create a reliable shield that prevented terrorists from Syria from penetrating Russia. This was a matter of defending ourselves. We had no other choice. The same is happening today. They did not leave us any other option for defending Russia and our people other than the one we are forced to use today. In these circumstances, we have to take bold and immediate action. The People's Republics of Donbass have asked Russia for help. In this context, in accordance with Article 51, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, with permission of Russia's Federation Council, and an execution of the Treaties of Friendship and Mutual Assistance with the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, ratified by the Federal Assembly on February 22nd, I made the decision to carry out a special military operation. The purpose of this operation is to protect people who for eight years now have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetrated by the Kiev regime. To this end, we will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, as well as bring to trial those who perpetrated numerous bloody crimes against civilians, including against citizens of the Russian Federation. It is not our plan to occupy the Ukrainian territory. We do not intend to impose anything on anyone by force. Get the fuck out of here. How does he say shit like that with a straight face? We're not going to impose anything on anyone by force. That's all you're fucking doing over there. At the same time, we have been hearing an increasing number of statements coming from the West that there is no need anymore to abide by the documents setting forth the outcomes of World War II as signed by the totalitarian Soviet regime. How can we respond to that? The outcomes of World War II and the sacrifices our people had to make to defeat Nazism are sacred. This does not contradict the high values of human rights and freedoms in the reality that emerged over the post-war decades. This does not mean that nations cannot enjoy the right to self-determination, which is enshrined in Article 1 of the UN Charter. Let me remind you that the people living in territories, which are part of today's Ukraine, were not asked how they want to build their lives when the USSR was created after World War II. I'm pretty sure they did, actually. Freedom guides our policy. The freedom to choose independently our future and the future of our children. We believe that all people living in today's Ukraine, anyone who wants to do this, must be able to enjoy this right to make a free choice. They have made free choices. They chose to try and get the fuck away from you, maniac. Why would they be fighting as hard as they've been fighting if they fucking loved Putin and Russia? Clearly, they have made their choice, and that choice is fuck Putin. In this context, I would like to address the citizens of Ukraine. In 2014, Russia was obliged to protect the people of Crimea and Sevastopol from those who you call yourself uh, Nats. 
the people of Crimea and Sevastopol made their choice in favor of being with the historical homeland, Russia. No, they didn't. And we supported their choice. As I said, we could not act otherwise. No, didn't make that choice. You presented propaganda as fact, fucking bullshit polls. Made it seem like they made their choice. The current events have nothing to do with the desire to infringe on the interests of Ukraine and Ukraine people. They are connected with the defending Russia from those who have taken Ukraine hostage and are trying to use it against our country and our people. I reiterate, we are acting to defend ourselves from the threats created for us and from a worse peril than what is happening now. I'm asking you, however hard this may be, to understand this and to work together with us so as to turn this tragic page as soon as possible and to move forward together without allowing anyone to interfere in our affairs and our relations but developing them independently so as to create favorable conditions for overcoming all those problems and to strengthen us from within a single whole despite the existence of state borders, I believe this is our common future. Okay, he wants the fucking Soviet Union again. Got it, loud and clear. Now he addresses the military. I would also like to address the military personnel of the Ukrainian armed forces. Comrade, officers, my God, you look so good in your officer suits, your manly chest, they are so proud. Oh, your pecs, so firm, your buttocks, so high and tight. Oh, I want to breed you. I'm not going to lie. I want to breed you. I want you to tie me up. Tell me I'm a bad boy. Say I'm a bad boy. You are KGB. I'm dirty Ukrainian peasant. You must interrogate me. I have intel, but I will not give it up easy. You probably have to choke me. I suggest using cock, but it is your choice. You're in charge. I tied up. I helpless. I have no shirt on. My balls tied tight with rubber band. It hurts so good. Maybe you have to paddle my bottom. Maybe you maybe you have to breathe my bottom to get answer you want. Maybe you have to piss on me. Watch me come. When strong, golden Russian stream hits my mouth, open, wetty mouth, maybe you have to shit on me. Maybe I need a showbiz or some peanut butter butter. Maybe that's how they do it in Hollywood. Sorry. Uh, back to the real speech. <laughs> Comrade officers. Your fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers did not fight the Nazi occupiers, did not defend our common motherland to allow today's neo-Nazis to seize power in Ukraine. You swore the oath of allegiance to the Ukrainian people and not to the junta, the people's adversary, which is plundering Ukraine and humiliating the Ukrainian people. I urge you to refuse to carry out their criminal orders. I urge you to immediately lay down your arms and go home. I'll explain what this means. The military personnel of the Ukrainian army who do this will be able to freely leave the zone of hostilities and return to their families. Ah, that hasn't happened, I don't think at all. I don't believe that for a second. I want to emphasize again that all responsibility for the possible bloodshed will lie fully and wholly with the ruling Ukrainian new regime. I would now like to say something very important for those who may be tempted to interfere in these developments from the outside. No matter who tries to stand in our way, or all the more so create threats from our country and our people, they must know that Russia will respond immediately and the consequences will be such as you have never seen in your entire history. No matter how the events unfold, we are ready. All the necessary decisions in this regard have been taken. I hope that my words will be heard. Shit. Uh, I feel like that was a little bit, you know, directed at people like me. I don't know. Uh, is, is Russia going to respond immediately to this podcast? I don't think I have a huge listenership of many Putin loyalists, thank God. Uh, also, uh, the history has never seen before, like you respond in a way that felt like a, a, a definite thinly veiled threat of nuclear warfare. And then Putin adds just a little closing address. Citizens of Russia, the culture and values, experience and traditions of our ancestors invariably provided a powerful underpinning for the well-being and the very existence of entire states and nations. Their success and viability 
Of course, this directly depends on the ability to quickly adapt to constant change, maintain social cohesion, and readiness to consolidate and summon all the available forces in order to move forward. We always try to be strong, but this strength can take on different forms. The empire of lies, which I mentioned in the beginning of my speech, proceeds in its policy primarily from rough, direct force. This is when our saying on being all brawn and no brains applies. Jesus Christ, he's literally just described the entire history of Russian warfare. All brawn, no brains. No country is known more than Russia for not caring how many of their soldiers die when trying to accomplish the military goal. This fucking bizarro world inversion he does all the time is maddening. When he's describing Ukraine and the West, he's really describing Russia. And when he's describing Russia, he's often describing the West. It's like classic bully playing the victim and then calling the real victim the bully. We all know that having justice and truth on our side is what makes us truly strong. If this is the case, it would be hard to disagree with the fact that it is our strength and our readiness to fight that are the bedrock of independence and sovereignty and provide the necessary foundation for building a reliable future for your home, your family, and your motherlands. Dear compatriots, I am certain that devoted soldiers and officers of Russia's armed forces will perform their duty with professionalism and courage. I have no doubt that the government institutions at all levels and specialists will work effectively to guarantee the stability of our economy, financial system, and social well-being. And the same applies to corporate executives and the entire business community. I hope that all parliamentary parties and civil society take a consolidated patriotic position. At the end of the day, the future of Russia is in the hands of its multi-ethnic people, has always been the case in our history. This means the decisions that I made will be executed, that we will achieve the goals we have set, and reliably guarantee the security of our motherland. I believe in your support and the invincible force rooted in the love for our fatherland. Now someone please come breathe my mouth. Maybe I added that last part. It's that last line. Uh, speech is finally over. Now there was a lot. Explosions were heard in Ukraine shortly after this speech. Russia proceeded to invade Ukraine by land, sea, and air. Russian forces shelled more than a dozen cities and towns, including one just outside of Kiev. Uh, Russian forces invaded uh, Kharkiv. Soldiers moved into an area north of Kiev and advanced on uh, Chern- uh, Chernihiv. A battle started at the Chernobyl exclusion zone, and by sunset, Russians had seized Chernobyl and began pushing into Kiev. 18 Ukrainian military officials were killed in an attack outside Odessa. Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky said the Ukraine or said the Ukraine would defend itself against Russia. The 22 invasion of Ukraine marked the largest military mobilization in Europe since World War II. Ukrainians had already begun fleeing the country on buses and trains before the invasion, knowing it was inevitable. Others hiding in train stations and bunkers to prepare for the attacks. Thousands of Russians protested, were arrested or fined. Zelensky made a video speaking Russian, pleading with Russia for peace. He announced that Russia had ordered almost 200,000 soldiers to invade Ukraine, saying if these forces attack us, if you attempt to take away our country, our freedom, our lives, the lives of our children, we will defend ourselves, not attack, defend. The US G7 and the EU imposed several severe economic sanctions on Russia, including full blocking sanctions on the Russia's largest financial institution, uh, Spurbank, and its largest private bank, Alpha Bank, prohibiting investments in the Russian Federation. Over 600 international businesses stopped doing business with Russia. Full blocking sanctions on Russia uh, state-owned enterprises ensued. Uh, full blocking sanctions on Russian elites and their family members, including Putin's children. Members of the Security Council, including former president and prime minister Dmitry uh, Medvedev, his lapdog. Uh, the U.S. Treasury prohibited Russia from making debt payments with funds subjects, uh, subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Russia's central bank had its assets frozen. Major banks shut out of the international SWIFT payment transfer network. U.S. banned imports of Russian oil and gas. 
EU aims to cut gas imports by two-thirds within a year. UK aims to phase out Russian oil by the end of this year. Uh, Germany has halted approval on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, a major investment by Russian and European companies. Russian airlines barred from airspace over the EU, UK, US, and Canada. Uh, Putin's goal of capturing Kiev and deposing the government to end Ukraine's desire to join NATO not yet happened at the time of this recording. Obviously hoping it'll, ne- it'll never happen. Uh, Russian propaganda continues to use claims that neo-Nazis control the government and are perpetrating a genocide against Russians in Ukraine as moral justification for Russian attacks on Ukraine. That is such nonsense, as I'll point out soon. Putin keeps claiming the invasion is meant to protect people subject uh, to bullying and genocide by the Ukrainian government. He's made sure to you know, not call it a war. It's still just a special military operation. Talks between Ukrainian President Zelensky and Putin continue to be fruitless as of this recording. Uh, in the Kiev suburb of Bucha, a UN mission has documented that 50 civilians have been killed there, including a sum, some by execution. Uh, the real body count believed to be at least 400 people, if not many more. Mass graves of hundreds of dead civilians discovered in Bucha, other towns around Kiev after Russian troops retreated in late March. Nationwide, the UN, as of April 26, counts over 3,400 uh, dead civilians in Ukraine. Roughly 200 of those are children. The real body count thought to be much higher. There have been widespread reports of Russian soldiers raping Ukrainians. According to eyewitnesses in Bucha, Russian soldiers raped dozens of women there, most of them killed afterwards. Uh, in a quiet, here's just you know a, a quick story from the BBC. You can find so many similar stories online to, to humanize this. In a quiet rural neighborhood 45 miles west of Kiev, uh, the BBC reporter spoke to Anna, who's 50 years old. They say, we've changed her name to protect her identity. Anna told us that on March 7th, she had been at home with her husband when a foreign soldier barged in. At gunpoint, he took me to a house nearby. He ordered me, take your clothes off or I'll shoot you. He kept threatening to kill me if I didn't do as he said. Then he started raping me. Anna described her attacker as a young, thin Chechen fighter allied with Russia. While he was raping me, four more soldiers entered. I thought I was done for, but they took him away. I never saw him again, she said. She believed she was saved by a separate unit of Russian soldiers. Anna went back home, found her husband who had been shot in the stomach. He had tried to run after me to save me, but he was hit by a round of bullets, she said. They both then shot, uh, sought shelter in a neighbor's house. She couldn't take her husband to the hospital because of the fighting, and he died of his injuries two days later. Anna never stopped crying while telling the reporter her story. Man, goddamn, all that evil, all on Putin's hands. Also unnecessary, unprovoked violence. Uh, just through March 24th, 4,431 residential buildings, 92 factories, 378 schools, 138 healthcare institutions, 12 airports and seven thermal power and hydroelectric power plants have been damaged, destroyed, or seized, according to the Kiev School of Economics. Man, all those fucking schools. Uh, an estimated $63 billion of infrastructure damage done at that time. More than 1,200 Russian uh, ballistic missiles have been fired on Ukraine as of March 25th. How many in the month plus since that assessment? More than 11 million people believed to have fled their homes in Ukraine since the conflict began, according to the United Nations as of April 25th. The largest humanitarian crisis in Europe since World War II. There have been multiple reports of Russian uh, soldiers using Ukrainian children as shields in battle. Actual Russian crisis actors have been seen uh, pretending to be Ukrainian residents reporting uh, to Russian state-controlled media outlets that all the bad shit anyone's been hearing about Russia's supposed war crimes is a bunch of fake news and on and on and on. Russian officials continue to deny that their soldiers have killed any civilians in Ukraine, and they accuse Ukraine of staging atrocities. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, former Chilean president, said on April 22nd that over these eight weeks since the start of the war, international humanitarian law has not been ignored, but seemingly tossed aside. 
The UN mission has also documented what appears to be the use of weapons with indiscriminate effects, causing civilian casualties and damage to civilian objects by Ukrainian armed forces in the east of the country. And the propaganda machine just keeps rolling down the tracks. As of March 22nd, more than 15,000 Russians have been arrested for peacefully protesting what's going on in Ukraine, right? That's a sign of a great nation worth defending, arresting anyone who openly disagrees with the state's official narrative. Reportedly, over 30,000 Ukrainians have been kidnapped, taken to Russia or separatist territory in Ukraine. Uh, the Pentagon, other worldwide agencies currently investigating uh, possible use of chemical weapons on Ukrainian civilians. Fuck, man. Uh, let's get out of this timeline now and look uh, a bit at Russia's justification for all of this. I could keep naming atrocities for hours. Uh, their whole cleansing Ukraine's Nazi problem. Let's see if uh, that holds any validity or not. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. In a March 26th speech given in Poland, President Biden said, Putin has the gall to say he's denazifying Ukraine. It's a lie. He knows that. And it's also obscene. President Zelensky uh, was democratically elected in a non-rigged election, getting 73% of the vote in 2019. And he is Jewish. Uh, I feel like that probably wouldn't happen in a nation infested with Nazis. Are there homophobic racist assholes in Ukraine? Yeah. Are there nationalistic motherfuckers there? Of course, they're everywhere. I bet we have a lot more of those uh, in America than in Ukraine. Loads more. Uh, A recent statement signed in February by more than 300 historians who studied genocide, Nazism, and World War II said Putin's rhetoric about denazifying fascists among Ukraine's elected leadership is, quote, propaganda. Of course, that's, that's what he does. Here's an excerpt from an article published on uh, at the website jewishjournal.com. Obviously, a uh, pretty pro-Jewish website. Uh, February 27th, 2022, regarding that statement that was signed by all those historians. As we write this, the horror of war is unfolding in Ukraine. The last time Kyiv was under heavy artillery fire and saw tanked in its streets was during World War II. If anyone should know it, it's Vladimir Putin, who is obsessed with the history of that war. Russian propaganda has painted the Ukrainian state as Nazi and fascist ever since Russian special forces first entered Ukraine in 2014, annexing the Crimea and fomenting the conflict in the Donbass, which has smoldered for eight long years. It was propaganda in 2014. It remains propaganda today. This is why we came together to protest the use of this false and destructive narrative. Among those who have signed the statement below are some of the most accomplished and celebrated scholars of World War II, Nazism, genocide, and the Holocaust. If you are a scholar of this history, please consider adding your name to the list. If you are a journalist, you now have a list of experts you can turn to in order to help your readers better understand Russia's war against Ukraine. I mean, there you go. I could list out a whole bunch of other articles saying the same shit, but do I really need to? If you actually think that Putin is a good dude, if he's he's purging Nazis from Ukraine and his military activity is justified, you have fallen for Putin's lies. I know that's inflammatory. No one wants to ever hear that. But sometimes you have to say inflammatory shit when it's the obvious truth and that obvious truth is important. These lies have unfortunately been parroted by politicians across the world, including here in America. Unfortunately, you don't have to pass an IQ test to become a politician. Uh, Just because, uh, you know, a politician is saying this shit, even one that you may have voted for, doesn't mean they actually know what the fuck they're talking about. So much of them just play to optics, to fucking partisan politics, uh, to cheerleading for their own team. Uh, Putin, man, goddamn, according to Putin biographer Natalia Kavorkian, once a KGB, always a KGB. Seems so. 
Uh, Valery Mazarov, an exiled construction magnate, another former oligarch, says Putin and his fellow politicians are nothing more than gangsters. As if the mafia were in charge of a nation, the corruption continues to worsen, he says. Former Putin advisor Stanislav Belovsky believes Putin has stashed away over $40 billion worth of assets, a figure confirmed by the CIA in 2014. How much is he worth now? He might be one of the richest or the richest men in the world. Putin experts believe that at this point, Putin is staying in power partially because he's afraid that if he steps down, he'll be jailed or killed by his many, many enemies and won't be able to enjoy all that wealth. And if he's going to stay in power, might as well see how much more powerful he can get, right? Might as well use his troll farms to create fake accounts and push disinformation and turn Americans against one another, weaken our culture without ever having to fire a shot across the Atlantic, weaken the cultures of other pro-Western societies. Might as well use propaganda to justify burning Ukraine to the fucking ground. What's he going to do next? This motherfucker should be public enemy number one for most of the Western world. For all of the Western world, he's a fucking monster. And we should be very, very concerned regarding any media pundits, social influencers, politicians, etc., who trust or admire this motherfucker. Dude's a devil, master of lies. And he can't sing Blueberry Hill for shit. I mean, right? So where does the story go from here? Well, we don't know, obviously. Hopefully someone kills him sooner than later, slowly and painfully. Cold War's not dead. Mother Russia alive and well. Democratic in name only. It's a totalitarian regime ran by a KGB, forever, commie-loving megalomaniac and master propagandist. Vladimir Putin has expressed his desire over and over to make Russia as powerful as it was during the height of the Soviet Union. That is scary. If he can accomplish that, Ukraine won't be the last nation he will send his war machine into for special military operations. Uh, Good topic choice once again, space lizards. I learned a lot. I hated this fuck before I started this week's research, and I hate him so much more now. Bojangles, even sedated, almost had a brain aneurysm. If I let him out of his kennel, he's going to run, then swim straight towards Russia and try and take this despot out himself. Uh, May Ukraine continue to defy the odds. May the David continue to fend off the attacks of this Goliath. Death to Putin. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Vladimir Putin, born October 7th, 1952 in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, Russia. Grew up in a tiny communal apartment in a city that that he shared with two other families, a bunch of rats, and a closet toilet. Too bad he's not still living there. Number two, as a teenager, Putin had dreams of becoming a spy. He actually walked into the local KGB headquarters to ask to volunteer, but was told that wouldn't be possible. So he studied law at the university to improve his chances of joining the KGB. After graduation, Putin did join the KGB, served for 15 years, rose up the ranks, retired with the rank of lieutenant colonel. Number three, Putin has played a prominent role in Russian politics since 1999. He has changed laws to scrap term limits for presidents, influenced elections to his favor. He is uh, set to serve as president of Russia until 2024, will most likely run again for that year's election. Uh, He's known to have barred competitors from running, have them jailed or have them killed, and he fixes the vote. So, you know, if he runs, he wins. Number four, Putin has ordered Russian soldiers to invade Ukraine twice in 2014 and in 2022. The relationship between Russia and Ukraine goes back all the way to the 1700s. This is, uh, there's division between the West and East, with the East primarily supporting Russian interests, or at least half supporting Russian interests and the West wanting to join Ukraine. Although his motives are not 100% clear, Putin wants to take Ukraine to help reestablish a security zone, a buffer state, increase Russia's power, access natural resources. He views NATO and Western influences as a threat to Russia's power. The 2022 invasion, still ongoing, still developing each day. Number five, new info. Did you know that Putin was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize? Twice. 
In October of 2013, Putin was nominated for his first Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the Peace Prize organization will accept any nomination from a qualified nominator. This could be a member of a government, a professor, or a director of a policy institute. Only rule is that you can't nominate yourself. Putin's nomination came from the International Academy of Spiritual Unity and Cooperation of Peoples of the World, a Russian advocacy group, of course, that pursues peace. He was nominated in recognition of his efforts in brokering a non-military solution to punish the Syrian government for using chemical weapons. I wonder how much he pressured that group to nominate him for that. A uh, famous Russian singer and former politician, uh, Yasev Kobzon, dubbed the Soviet Sinatra, also nominated Putin for the Peace Prize in 2013 for healing billions of souls through his incredible vocal talents. Obviously, JK. Uh, He told Interfax News Agency, Barack Obama is the man who has initiated and approved the the U.S. aggressive actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now he's preparing for an invasion into Syria. He bears this title. Nevertheless, our president who tries to stop the bloodshed and who tries to help the conflict situation with political dialogue is more worthy of this high title. Uh Uh-huh. Then on September 10th, 2020, a group of Russian writers led by Sergei Komkov nominated Putin for another Nobel Peace Prize. Spokesman Dmitry uh, Peskov said the Kremlin did not make the nomination. You all know that completely different people are nominated for this award. This is an initiative of those submitting the nomination. In this case, the affirmation writer. If this decision is made, great. If not, it's no problem as well. <laughs> what an incredibly Russian statement. If he win, that is great. If he not win, it is also great. Excuse me now, while I go drink vodka, stare off into middle distance and await uh, the inevitable death that come for us all. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Vladimir, son of Vladimir Putin, has been sucked. His story up until now, anyway. Uh, I know there were plenty of details I left out, but, uh, you know, for one episode, I think he gave a a pretty good uh, general picture of who that motherfucker really is. Uh, Thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for their help in making Time Suck every week. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Bit Elixir. For upkeep on the Time Suck app, Logan the Art Warlock Keith creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, thanks to Liz for running socials uh, along with Logan, uh, Liz Hernandez, the Enchantress. Thanks to Olivia Lee for kicking off the research on this one once again. Three weeks in a row, I think now. Great job. Uh, thanks to all the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cold of the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks again to Beefsteak, his mod squad running Discord. More and more people, you know, having a good time on there. Uh, you can link to the TimeSuck community on Discord via the TimeSuck app. You can also easily find the TimeSuck subreddit. Over 7,000 members having fun there. And now there's a Bad Magic subreddit as well. Next week, uh, we play the dating game. That's right. Next week, we're going to have three eligible bachelors in the studio answering questions for a chance to win a date with me. I'll ask some questions like, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? And what car best fits your personality? Uh, wait, no. Uh, actually, next week, we're going to uh, suck the dating game killer. Much darker, less happy-go-lucky fun times. Uh, Zero eligible bachelors. Darkly fascinating. Also, why does moving to a serial killer feel to me like like things are going to lighten up after this week's suck? Uh, I don't know. What I do know is that between 1968 and 1979, Rodney Alcala committed numerous attacks on women. While he's conclusively linked to nine murders, uh, Alcala's true number of victims remains unknown and could be much higher, seen as how he uh, had almost 2,000 photographs in a storage locker of anonymous men, women, and children. Prosecutors would say that Alcala toyed with his victims, strangling them until they lost consciousness, and then waiting until they revived, sometimes repeating this process several times before finally killing them. One detective would even describe him as a killing machine. 
Perhaps even worse, he left his victims in terrible poses for people to find, horrifying them when they came across naked dead bodies posed in sickly, uh, sickly, playful positions. Murder truly was a game to him and he was good at it. Multiple times, Rodney skated right by law enforcement or got out of long prison sentences, even disguised himself as a good guy long enough to appear on a, as a contestant in a September 1978 episode of The Dating Game, where he, he was introduced as a photographer by host Jim Lang, and he made a contestant Cheryl Brad, Bradshaw laugh with his impression of a dirty old man. She had no idea how dirty Rodney actually was uh, because uh, she picked him. She was supposed to go on a date with him, luckily didn't, found him too creepy. Uh, good call, Cheryl. Way to trust your gut. Sounds like it literally saved your life. Uh, After its appearance in the dating game, Rodney would kill again. The dark and disturbing story of the dating game killer next week on Time Suck. Right now, time for Time Sucks. Uh, Time Sucker uh, updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. This was a worthy one today. I feel like my my tongue is numb. Uh, Let's start off with an anonymous Epstein update. Some uh, inside scoop info, information I couldn't give you since I've never worked in a prison. Uh, I love this kind of shit. So uh, an anonymous meat sack writes, suck nasty the master sucker, man the Dan. Shit, I messed that up. Anyway, what's up, motherfucker? First, I want to give a shout out to all you guys at Bad Magic. I've been listening to Time Suck. Is we dumb? It's scared to death for about a year now. It checks all the boxes. Learning interesting shit. Yep. Laughing at childish jokes. Yep. Getting unnerved. Also, yep. So thank you guys for getting me through some really long weeks over the past year. Now on to the point of my email, Epstein didn't kill himself. At least the part of my brain fascinated with conspiracy theories wants to believe that. However, I've worked in prisons for coming up on a decade. Six of those with the BOP, not a Brooklyn, and most of that has been in the shoe. It's pronounced like shoe, as in check for shoes, by the way. S-H-U, yeah. Uh, What I'm going to try to do, I didn't know that though, thank you. What I'm going to try to do with this email is explain a few things I felt were wrong, or just not explain correctly due to limited public knowledge on the intricacies of prison procedures. I can't speak for the officers on duty that night, nor would I try to. Since the beginning of 2019, staff shortages bureau-wide have been immense. I don't know of a single one of my coworkers who has worked just the required 40 hours per week in years. We're working 60 to 80 hours per week, whether we want to or not. Damn. Mandatory overtime is hell when you're short-staffed. We, we're all a little tired and worn down at this point. This is by no means an excuse not to do the bare minimum of 30-minute rounds, especially on the overnight shift. On the topic of rounds, there isn't multiple reports for annotating the rounds. It's one page with marked time slots to be filled out per tier. That is 12 to 12.30, with the space to write in the actual time the round was conducted and initials. Makes sense. As far as any unauthorized person getting into the shoe in order to kill Epstein, that's highly unlikely. The only way to get in or to get out of the shoe is to be let in or let out by the staff currently working the shoe. Lieutenants, captains, hell, even wardens can't get into the shoe unless they are identified by the staff in the shoe and the door open for them. Supervisors are required to make rounds to all housing units, including the shoe. The conversation always goes pretty much the same way. You guys good? Need anything? All right, let me out. An inmate being placed on suicide watch is the same thing as a 72-hour involuntary hold at a hospital. A psychologist will talk to them daily for the three days or longer. While I would esteem they're no longer a threat to themselves, they'll be removed from watch. There are several issues with placing cameras inside of cells in shoe. While there are cameras from multiple angles that show the cell doors on any given tier, most don't peer inside of a cell more than a foot or two. There are privacy and Priya concerns with inmates having showers and toilets in the cells to be accounted for. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the main concern is whether or not a CO can see into the cell when rounds are conducted. Cameras go down and come back up all the time. It's cheapest bidder equipment. 
It isn't all the cameras in the whole jail all at once though. That'd be suspicious as hell, but I haven't seen any reports of that happening ever. We as COs are not trained medical personnel. Our medical training is just above first aid. Prisons have designated medical staff. The COs that found Epstein hanging are not qualified to make the determination that he is dead. Our procedure is to cut the individual down, get them to medical staff, where, whether institutional or outside hospital, as fast as possible. The idea that the COs leave him hanging there to take pictures is asinine. All right. Okay. That makes sense. We're required to perform life-saving first aid in the way of CPR and AED application. The cell is secured after the fact for photographs because it is, as you said, a crime scene. Here's my personal opinion, all based on speculation. Epstein killed himself, but maybe he didn't want to. All the meetings with the lawyers and possibly finding out that even if he is naming names, he was still going to die in prison. Maybe the lawyer slipped him a message from one of his high-profile clients slash friends saying the only way out was to die. Protect the herd by culling the trapped creature. I don't know. I wasn't there. I just can't see it happening any other way, though. Between having to be let out, uh, be- between having to be let into the shoe, a camera between the front door and the shoe not catching any strange occurrences, and the sheer amount of people that would have had to have been paid off to keep it quiet. A quick rundown. By no means an extensive list of the people would be the shoe officers, the lieutenant on shift, the common techs, camera equipment maintenance, the investigation squad, the warden, the assistant wardens, other line staff who may have seen something. To me, it just seems like someone somewhere would have said something to someone else. The conspiracy crowd is right to call out the negligence and inconsistencies in the case, but I'm going to default to Occam's razor. Epstein killed himself. Good God, I didn't mean for this email to be this long, but I'm not sorry. We're all here in the pursuit of knowledge, and I can help contribute to that with this episode. I can hear the shills calling me a deep state operative now. Anyway, keep up the good work. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Good boy, Bojangles. I think you've earned three out of five stars. Uh, I'll keep on sucking if you do. Name redacted. Uh, P.S. Whipple and Whiskey, better than Jaeger Bombs. Give it a try sometime. Love it. Uh, clearly, uh, everyone listening, that message was uh, was sent to us by a Russian disinformation specialist from St. Petersburg, and we can fucking ignore it. Kidding. Uh, that was very interesting info. Damn it. Well, now, now I'm questioning my assessment. Maybe I just want a more dramatic ending to the story than the simple possibility that this perv just killed himself. Uh, really appreciate the well-crafted, thoughtful email. Mr. Epstein, gotcha. We see what you're doing. Probably sent that email from your fucking flatbed, New Mexico, uh, Chevy Silverado work truck. Okay. Uh, seriously, oh, thank you. Uh, now for a short and sweet shout-out request from Sweet, maybe not so short sucker, Jeremy Flannery. Jeremy writes, hello, Master Sucker. My wife and I are big fans and love listening to the podcast every week as soon as we can get our ears on it. We live right here in beautiful Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and have grown up in the area all our lives. Today, April 26th, is our 25th wedding anniversary, and if there is any way to tell Shannon happy anniversary on the podcast, she would be elated. Thank you, and hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Jeremy, I'm a week late, I know, but better than better late than never, right? I hope Shannon, uh, you know, uh, had to take work off on the 27th because you wrecked her puss. Hail Lucifina. Happy anniversary, Shannon. I do hope you uh, you two are still romantic and animalistic as well. Don't get too comfortable 25 years in. Do some role play. Take a romantic weekend away. Maybe go to Wallace. Maybe go fuck on a trail. Get primal. And also, of course, be sweet to one another. Communicate well. Uh, teach each other uh, what you love about one another. Uh, hold hands. Snuggle on the couch. All that stuff, too. And weather's finally good here in Coeur d'Alene. So get out and enjoy it. You love birds. Uh, now for another Epstein update. A correction. Uh, I got a few of these from Smart Sucker uh, on, about the same message here. Uh, this is Smart Sucker Merrick Storley. And Merrick writes... Hi, Dan. I was just reaching out to say that the now I am become death thing from the subway shooter in your Epstein part two episode is not a grammar mistake. It's a reference to J. Robert Oppenheimer, 
who was a mastermind behind the Manhattan Project. He was very regretful about his invention because of how destructive it was. And in an interview about it later in life, he referenced the uh, Bhagavad Gita and said, now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Not a criticism at all, just an interesting story. Thanks for doing the podcast. I look forward to it every week. Merrick. Yes, Merrick. Yes, the wackadoodle, subway shooter. Knew a reference that I did not. I made fun of his grammar and he made me look like an idiot. Uh, thanks for the correction. I wouldn't have known otherwise. And yeah, and I got a few uh, more from other suckers about that same thing. So thank you. And now let's end on one more anonymous message. Another one related to Epstein. Another anonymous sucker writes, Dan, just throwing it out there before I turn up uh, like Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not suicidal. I'm a police officer in Palm Beach County where Epstein lived. Also have been past uh, his island in the Virgin Islands due to my brother living down there and passing it as we go to other islands in the area. It's fucking insane. Just a spot that it's in, the size. Back in 2015, 2016, I actually had one of Epstein's attorney do a ride along with me because he was about to become a traffic judge for the county. During the ride along, he was more than open and willing to tell me that, quote, Mr. Epstein is just misunderstood. What in the actual fuck did he mean by this? I don't know, nor did I have a lot of knowledge of the Epstein case at the time. I grew up in this county and it's a huge fucking county. Money runs this place. The island, Palm Beach Island, is very much like this. A shit ton of shady shit goes on at that island. My wife also went to school with some of the girls who went to work for Epstein. This county is insane sometimes, and the amount of money here is unreal. Again, hopefully I don't end up committing suicide for sending this. If you have questions about the county, let me know. I can help answer some of those. Take care, L. Thank you, L. Yeah, Epstein is just misunderstood. That sounds like that attorney you talked to that did the ride-along was maybe wrestling with his conscience. Right, telling himself he didn't defend a really bad guy. He defended a guy who is a good guy who just misunderstood. He has a hard time understanding what people's ages are. He he has a hard time. His ears don't work right and don't understand uh, the word no. The lies we tell ourselves, right? Uh, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for uh, working in law enforcement and don't get suicided. And let's get out of here. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sex. Another, another big one. I thought about cutting this one in half, but I don't want to do two-parters all the time. Uh, please don't claim one of your neighbors is a Nazi just to justify invading their property and then committing war crimes. Just calm the fuck down. Stop being tricked by Russian troll farm disinformation specialists and just keep on sucking. <laughs> Magic Productions. Oh, Comrade Paisley, I need you to do something for me, for yeah. Russia. What do you need? I need you to uh, shoot Logan in the face with a gun and kill him. No problem. Right Thank back. you. So, Jesus. For Russia, just le- you leave it. Kill him. Put it later. Uh, uh, Comrade Paisley. Okay, okay, I got it. Sorry about that. Uh, when, you, when you finish with uh, yeah. War Eagle, yeah. I want you uh, a little upset you... You dropped Woody on the ground. Woody's right there. No, you drop him. You f- you drop him. Clumsy mistake. I need you to fix your mistake. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to drop him. Uh, here you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Is that good? That's very good. Anything now, else? anything else for right now? For today workout, go on the roof okay. uh, and please just jump off and okay. come back, back with broken right legs. I'll try to be right back. He's good comrade. He get it. He get it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.